Okay, welcome to our late May show. In fact, it's so late, we're going to call it our early June show. And we've entitled the first part of it, Briefer Madness. All the hip baby boomers who understand the reference back to the 1930s government-sponsored movie about the evils of marijuana, appropriately enough, called Reefer Madness. This is a different type of reefer. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's fascinating. So, this is our opening. So, joining uh, Mr. Lincoln and myself is Dave Donaldson. Chris Palmeras and I ran into uh, Dave at the uh, proto-meet at the end of March over in San Bernardino. And when you went by Dave's table, there was this uh, fog kind of flowing off of the off of the table, looking very uh, surreal there. He had a sign. It said, Frozen Audio. So, anyway, Dave, tell us about... Uh, just a overview right now of, of Frozen Audio and who you are and how it came to be, if you would. Well, thanks, Paul. Yes, the Frozen Audio actually something that uh, a friend and I started. Kind of grew grew out of uh, like a lot of things. It grew out of a necessity, uh, and a necessity, of course, was um, of my own devising, I guess. Because uh, I mean, do people really need to have? Sound in their reefer cars. I I really felt that it was something that needed to happen, and I kept waiting for for the industry to to produce something. Basically, well, I mean, it started when I was uh, a kid, and you know, I'd go out to the local rail yard, and I lived in an area that has a lot of produce, and so the there'd be a lot of Pacific Fruit Express reefers out there, and you know, the empties would be silent, but the ones that were loaded that were waiting to be Put on a train out of town, uh, they were, you know, generating sound, and that's what I was used to hearing. And uh, Athern had a pretty good uh, 57 foot mechanical reefer car, and I just thought, wow, it's a pretty good match. It'd be really cool to have you know, sound coming from that on on a, on a layout. And so, and this was back in you know the 70s, <laughs> so it's been quite a while. I've had this. This bug, this sort of, you know, this urge to have sound coming from a, a, a reefer car. The grief, you're a visionary. Seven in the seventies. So I, and then you know the, but the only real options at that time were you'd get like a five-five-five timer chip and make like a like a buzzer essentially, and it was you know there was sound coming from the rail car, but it it wasn't of course realistic. So it was you know better than nothing, but really wasn't quite. You know what you were looking for if you were saying, okay, this is this is accurate or this is you know prototypical. Then when DCC arrived and locomotives were having you know sound put in them, I thought, okay, now it's going to come. We're going to get something really cool, and it's, it's going to because you know they were taking actual soundtracks and putting them in digital format and, and running that through the, the decoder. And I thought, okay, now now we're going to get somewhere. But you know when you've got a a decoder that's running a hundred bucks. Well, okay, you're going to put that into a you know two hundred dollar locomotive, but are you going to get a decoder for a hundred bucks and put it into a thirty five dollar reefer car? You know, chances are pretty slim. So I'm pretty sure that's why the manufacturers decided to wait. You know, Mountain came out with uh, the really outstanding version of uh, the R seventy dash twenty reefers, 
excellent grill work if you see right through them, uh, great detail, multiple color schemes, all kinds of PFE, you know, not just here's a PFE scheme, but here's the different iterations as they went through different uh, different styles. And I was just chomping at the bit. I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, these cars are just screaming for sound. And then Red Caboose released uh, their version of the R70-15s, which were the earlier version that had like roof walks on and that sort of thing. And those were just great cars, and they now was becoming obsessed. <laughs> so then Exact Rail and BLMA came out with their modern 64 foot reefers, and now I just can't stand it. I just okay, somebody's got to come out with sound, and and I I felt that you know being on the forums and things, I felt other people had that same desire, but possibly the cost was a thing that was keeping uh, the the manufacturers from actually coming out with something. And then uh, last year, uh, Athern offered their 57-foot mechanical reefer with sound. Uh, so I said, okay, finally, finally somebody's doing it. Um, it didn't, you know, it wasn't offered in Pacific Fruit Express uh, scheme, but I figured, okay, I would just go get the sound unit as a spare part, you know, because Athern's really good about having that parts diagram come with their each of their products, and so you can get spare parts. And so I, you know, bought one of the, the FGE units and saw the parts diagram and it didn't have a part number for the sound unit. And I just assumed, okay, that's, that's an, uh, that's an oversight. So, uh, I called their parts department and they said, nope, it's not an oversight. It's not offered. And I just thought, um, okay. I thought, well, I'll call soundtracks directly. You know, I'll cut out the middleman. <laughs> I'm just going to go right to the source. And they said it's not on our drawing board you know, to offer as a separate part. And so I just thought, well, that must be because, you know, I'm just a model railroader. I'm not in the industry. So therefore, they're just sort of, you know, giving me low priority. And I figured, okay, somebody else will come out with it. Well, um, I talked with Joe D'Elia, who's, you know, been on your podcast several times, and he had the same idea. And he works part-time for Anthern. And so he used his connections with an Anthern to ask around, okay, can I get that sound unit as a spare part? And he said, no, it's not available. So he said he did the same thing I did. He went straight to Soundtracks, and he's, you know, a pretty big wheel in the industry, so he used his contacts uh, in Soundtracks to, okay, I'd like to start, you know, offering this as, as a separate product. And he said, no, same story. It's not available. So it, it just seemed like, okay, if 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 there's this pent-up demand and nobody's going to try and fill it, it just seemed kind of, well, all right, I'm, I'm going to at least make some for myself, you know. So, you know, like, like most people in the hobby, um, I like to tinker, you know, with stuff. And so I, I used uh, my my electronics knowledge and uh, and also, you know, went on the web to kind of see what's what's been out there because I didn't want to try to reinvent the wheel. And actually was able to produce a sound module uh, that I could actually put in my Reaper. And... Uh, I mean, it, it took several months, and I've got a pretty large graveyard of, of the ones that didn't work, but I finally did succeed, and I was showing it to um, some of my you know, fellow model railroaders, and they just they loved it. They said, oh, my gosh, this is, this is great. And so uh, they suggested that I should really seriously think about offering it as a product. I decided, well, let's see, the WPM meet's coming up, so why don't I, I, I got a vendor table there just sort of to gauge what, you know, the uh, the market was. And in order to attract people to the table, uh, I had a, a some dry ice uh, in a container with a, a, a heating, on a heating plate. 
And what it would do is it would actually generate this fog that was coming off and to you know, try to attract people to the table, um, which was actually good because the, that being held in, a, in the old depot there in San Bernardino, the, there's no carpet. And so the room is very reflective and it was people talking and just this cacophony of all this noise, it would be very difficult for anybody to hear these reefer cars running because there was just so much ambient noise. So having that fog was good because what it did was it, it, it was basically attracted people, you know, to the to the table. And by the time they got close enough to kind of see, oh, they could hear. And then they would, they would, you know, that would usually strike up a conversation. So, but I was pleasantly surprised to see how well received it was. And so then I also gave a, a clinic on uh, realistic uh, reefer sound and gave a survey to try and see, okay, do you believe this is something that uh, is is needed in the industry and also would you buy it? For for the for some of the people, they said no, they wouldn't buy it because they were maybe modeling, you know, uh, the time when, when reefers were iced, you know, when they were they were during the 50s. So it was it's before their era. But anybody who was actually modeling, you know. 60s and on, uh, they said, yes, this, this is needed. And so um, I thought, okay, this is good. And so what what we're doing is, is offering something that's, that would, you would call it a retrofit. You know, you've already got a, a reefer car, has no sound, and you need sound in it, and that, that's where we would come in. Uh, however, when I you know asked the question about ready to run, most people were saying that they would they would want and be willing to pay for a ready to run version, which makes sense because we run we, we live in a ready to run society. I mean everything is just instant on and uh, so and it seems like that's where where people would want to go is is to have have something that was ready to run. Uh, what I did was I I sent a demo car to uh, Blaine Hatfield over at the Exact Rail and he really liked it and so uh, he we're, we're talking about possibly offering. Uh, our sound modules in some of uh, some of their future releases, and uh, I also am in the process right now of sending a demo car to uh, to Craig Martin down at uh, BLMA, and uh, he he took a look at our website and liked what he saw, and so he's he, we you know he, he's interested as well, and I, I think both of them understand the you know the, the potential that it has to you know, fill a niche market. And so I, I think that would be something that, that we're hoping to be able to partner with them in the future. Well, the thing that I found uh, interesting was in our conversation there at the show. And so explain to people how reefers, let's say, during the, the early years of mechanical refrigeration, sound characteristics, say like what Atherin brought up, and how it differs today, because I found that interesting that you had picked up on that and had actually tailored your sound unit to replicate that. So give us some uh, background there. Sure. Well, one of the things, that was the other thing, was that I, uh, when you see the reefers going by, they generally are uh, they generally are on unless they're, well, they could be an off cycle. And so I was just wondering what, what, is, what causes that? Well, one of the things that we're trying to do is we're trying to do something that's realistic, which tends to mean you're trying to follow the prototype. So one of the things that I started doing was I started to research, okay, what do the shippers do? You know, what is it that when they're trying to set up a reefer car to ship some some produce or some, you know, frozen some frozen goods or refrigerated goods, what what do they do as a yardstick to figure out, okay, 
do they just sort of set it on, or, or is there some, something else more, more sophisticated? And so we, the reefers tend to fall, as we see it fall, the mechanical reefers fall in sort of two categories. One we call the classic, which is the, the reefers that were powered by the Detroit Diesel uh, 2-71 diesel units. Uh, 2-71 stands for two cylinders, 71 cubic inches each. And that's uh, th- those particular uh, Detroit diesels come their their lineage. Um, I think the, the some of the larger versions of of that particular uh, model type were actually used in like the Higgins boats and the landing craft during World War II. And so these are very uh, bulletproof um, engines. Um, they just run and run, and they're very simple to maintain because that's what you would need if you're going to take an entire reefer car full of, say, strawberries, and you're going to ship them to New York from California, you really have to make sure that that, that you know, because it's going to be unattended, there's not going to be sort of a maintenance person waiting around to, you know, sort of do the care and feeding of. You need this thing to be able to put fuel in it, let it run, and it has to maintain that temperature for better part of a week. And that way, you know, the load gets there intact, because the last thing you want is for, you know, a tire reefer car uh, full of strawberries that, you know, the unit failed halfway across the country, and so now you've basically got strawberry jam by the time it gets to its destination. These were made during the days when fuel was relatively cheap. So, you know, if you were getting diesel fuel to 30 cents a gallon or whatever, I mean, okay, you can just let this thing run all the time. So what they do is it's the, the generator set that was on board in the classic units. What they would do is they would run in an idle mode normally. And then there's also another piece of equipment within that, that uh, compartment at the end of the car, at the A end, and what it does is it's the refrigeration unit. And so when it when the thermostat says, I need to cool the interior of the car more, it will now put a load onto the generator set. So now what it does, it goes from idle to high rev because now it's, it's got a load on it and it has to meet that demand. So now what it's doing is it's running at a high idle and the refrigeration unit now starts running the pump that puts the coolant through the condensers and it, it now cools the interior of the car. And then when it d- determines that it's reached the, the low end of the threshold, it'll then say, okay, I'm done. And the motor stops pumping. And what that does is now the gen set goes back to idle. And so that's, that's what you would normally hear if you were uh, listening to one of, one of the old classic type reefer cars. So generally speaking, if it was not on it was unloaded because it was empty. There was nothing in there to cool. But if there was a load in there, it'll, it would either be idling or it would be a high rev. Whereas with the modern reefers, because they're based on the types of units that you see on the on the nose of, say, like a 53-foot trailer, you know, reefer trailer, those those are the ones that they're, they're now using because they're so much easier to maintain because they, they you know, they're externally mounted, whereas the Classic reefer, you had to actually remove the, you know, slide the grill work over and put a boom in there basically to try to yank out the equipment, and it, it was cramped in there. Whereas the ones they've got now, the, the modern reefers, the, those units, they you can just replace them relatively quickly and and get the uh, the reefer back on the road. Those units, uh, what they what they do is they're they're a little more sophisticated. Uh, what they do is they allow the the, the unit still has there's two modes that they run in. One is called continuous mode, which is basically the, the engine is running at a constant RPM, and it is 
and it's usually at a, at, a, at, a, at a speed that's pretty fuel efficient. And what it does is it's, it basically compresses the refrigerant. So it's kind of like what you would have where you've got a garden hose and, it's, and you've got a nozzle on the end. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that you've got the water's under constant pressure and the nozzle just lets through what it needs. Well, the same thing now with the refrigerant. What it does is the, uh, the, the engine is running at a constant RPM. There's constant pressure on the refrigerant, but there's a valve that only lets in what's needed to be able to put enough coolant into the system to allow it to cool the load so that it keeps it at a constant temperature. And so, and it turns out that a lot of the uh, refrigerated goods that are shipped, a lot of them require this constant sort of a, a continuous mode. For instance, if you have produce, um, which you know a lot of stuff that ships is produce, it wants to be, it wants to have a pretty constant temperature. Whereas the other type of mode that these modern reefers can run in is called start-stop. Well, we call it start-stop. The, um, if you're running a thermo-king unit, the, their documentation will call it cycle-century. The idea being that it does cycle and there's a century, like, you know, somebody watching over it kind of thing. Uh, and the carrier units, they call it auto-start-stop. So we are, for, for our purposes, uh, for, for us, we just call it start-stop. And what it does is the the unit can be completely shut down. Then the thermostat's, you know, checking to see what, what sort of temperature range you've got. And then as soon as it hits the upper end of that temperature, it now tells the generator, said, okay, kick in, I need you to start up, and I need you to start giving me power. So the, the diesel motor goes completely off, starts up, runs, and provides power. So now you can pump the coolant, and it, it will cool the load, and so, of course, the temperature decreases. When it gets to the lower end of that threshold, now what it does, it actually shuts completely off. And so what, what the shippers like about that, of course, is that it uses less fuel, less wear and tear on the equipment. But if you look at a graph of the interior of that car, what's happening is it's going up, down, up, down, up, down, and it, you know, depending on what kind of a range you give it, it could swing between 5 degrees, 10 degrees, 15 degrees, some of the loads can't handle that kind of variation. For instance, if you've got produce and you let it get too warm and then it starts to have condensation, what happens is that even if you cool it back down, the condensation actually can lead to mold. And so there, uh, the, the bill of lading, which is the, you know, the, the, what the, it's basically the marching orders that you would get from the customer to you, the shipper, it'll basically say, okay, this is what you're to do as far as the temperature and and not not just the temperature in route but the temperature before you even load the car because you, right. you know, what you don't want is a load of pre-cooled strawberries to go into a reefer car that's 120 degrees because it's been sitting out in the rail yard or something you know i mean that's that that defeats the whole purpose so the car has to be pre-cooled you put the the pre-cooled load in there and then of course it has to be maintained in route and then when it gets there, they're going to check it because if, you know, if it, if it got too warm in there, then you've probably compromised the load and the, the customer could refuse the load, which is not good. Now you have a pretty uncomfortable conversation with your insurance company because you've got a you know, whole load of, of strawberries just sitting here. No, that's just not good. So there's a data file being created that actually tracks the median temperature and the highs and lows Correct. for review at the end? Correct. 
for the modern wow, okay. for the modern reefers, they've got all kinds of onboard computers. Where you know the old school classic ones, it was pretty. I don't think that they would. It was you know pretty much before the days of microcomputers and that sort of thing. So they may have had some kind of you know analog type. Uh, one of those discs that rotates with a pen that's scratching on it, you know, and they could do something like that. But, I mean, there wasn't anything today where they can actually, I think it's to within a quarter of a degree, they can, they can track the temperature. And so it's very, very accurate. And, in fact, they've even had cases where the customer would, you know, refuse a load and claim that the, that, it, you know, it had gone outside the range that they had specified. Unfortunately, sometimes some uh, customers are unscrupulous, and they'll try to use that as a way to get a discount on the shipper, which is pretty sad. Anyway, so what they do is they can take that data, download it to a computer, and submit it in court as evidence, saying, "Look, this is, you know, we did stay within the range, so you know, the, the customer uh, needs to accept this load, and we're not going to, you know, the insurance company's not going to pay all kind of thing." And, okay. And so it, well, they can they can actually track that uh, dynamically because I, you know, they'll carrier will send people out to uh when i was in framingham when i would work in framingham they would send people out to service reefers in route you know we didn't call them essentially the reefer called carrier and said hey i need somebody out here to either fill the fuel or fix something because i'm busted the, the, that dynamically it's becoming much more cost effective for them to put those types of you know, satellite communication mm -hmm. uh, or even just you know cell phone call type uh, technology because a reefer load can be you know thousands or tens of thousands of dollars and so I mean if I were an insurance company and I had to be the one you know responsible for paying for this load if it doesn't get there in good shape I would definitely want to have something monitoring that load in route so it can do things like uh, tell you I've, I'm low on fuel. Uh, because you know maybe, maybe somebody stole the fuel out of the tank even though it was full when he started that kind of thing, or the you know I'm having mechanical problems like I've got a low battery so when you need me to restart I can't start you know that sort of thing. Uh, I'm having you know my temperature needs to be at 37 degrees but it's now getting pretty close to 30 you know 38 39. Uh, I'm not kicking in. There must be some kind of mechanical problem. So what happens is yes in route they they can send somebody in fact. One of the things that happened when I was at the WPM meet, uh, a, a guy named Russ stopped by the um, our table and was seemed very knowledgeable about this equipment. And so I started asking him some, you know, questions about is is this what it would sound like and what is this doing? And he he was just had all the answers. So I and he told me that he had spent 30 years repairing these refrigerator units on the rail cars and it and so I just thought okay well <laughs> that's good that's, that's a good enough authority for me so he was able to answer some of my questions about how things for instance the that the, uh, having that valve that allows the um, I thought, well, gee, if, it, if the engine's constantly running in continuous mode, does it just, you know, make the load get cooler and cooler and pretty soon it's, you know, going to compromise the load? And so that's when he told me about the, he called it the, uh, the suction modulation device, <laughs> which is the valve that keeps the, the, just the right amount of coolant going into the refrigeration system to keep the temperature, you know, constant. And so that, that, and started, he started to really, answer a lot a lot of the questions that I had 
And, and the other question that I had for him was, I said, you know, when I've been trackside and I've been listening to those the classic type reefers, I've never heard one start up spontaneously by itself. I've always heard them on or completely off, but I've never heard one start by itself, as you do with the modern reefers. And he said, yeah, that's that's the, the, the older style classic reefers. They they just would idle, you know, and then they would when they had a demand, they would they would idle up, and then when the demand was gone, they'd idle back down. And so that squared with my knowledge of what I had seen. But I just thought, well, you know, maybe they do that, and I just don't know because I wasn't trackside when that was happening. So he answered that question for me, and so that that was that was good. So I I, I with him. <laughs> With him as a resource, uh, we really feel like we've got a pretty good handle on what is realistic sound as far as what the prototype does. Because I mean, <laughs> this guy actually repairs them. So I mean, that's 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 pretty good authority. Are you? Because you said something a few moments ago. Are you going to um, offer components so that? You know, I could go buy your sound unit and combine it with a speaker and retrofit my own reefers. Uh, are you going to provide ready to run? And you mentioned you'd had conversations with Craig at BLMA and then uh, also at Exact Rail. So are you looking at a couple different channels uh, going to market? What do you think? Yes. We're, I mean, initially I was thinking, okay, we would try to – uh, fulfill the need for the retrofit market, which I, I believe is definitely out there. Yeah. And uh, so we we will definitely do that. However, we realize that the holy grail, you know, the, the larger picture is is the ready to run. And the odds that we as a company would go through the exercise of you know generating the tooling to make our own reefer cards, especially when there's already great ones out there. You know, sure. The odds of that happening are really slim. The idea would be to partner with folks that already have these reefer cards out there and say, okay, this is, you know, because there's several different options as far as how you would get those installed. Um, and so part of it is trying to figure out where that lies. The easiest thing for the manufacturer of the reefer car is for them to, you know, send us the, the reefer car and then we go through the process of retrofitting it and then give it back to them. The thing that you can do in, in between is, well, maybe they could modify some of their tooling so that, for instance, there uh, there would already be holes in the floor for the speaker sound to emit, and also maybe some other uh, mold in the floor that allow you to locate the sound module itself so that when you're you know, trying to glue it, also that they would send the car without the weight, the stamp, you know, stamp metal weight in it, because we have to remove that. And because by the time we put our equipment in there, it already, you know, uh, gets the car heavy enough so that it, it uh, gets within the, the NMRA standard. So there are ways to be able to get, and then do, does the retrofitting happen on this side of the ocean or does it happen on that side of the ocean? Um, that kind of thing. And uh, it, it just it just depends. But yes, there, we, we, well, we want to try to go both directions, but it's it, it depends on, on you know, what, how, how things play out. You're looking at all your options there. But again, I mean, I've probably got, I don't know, nine or ten more contemporary reefers. So, you know, I would go, good grief, yeah. I would retrofit a couple of those. If that. Now, is the sound unit itself the generator? Can you tell us about that? 
Sure. What we do there is, is the the thing that we're trying to do was was to find a unit that was inexpensive for you know, because there's there's you you could technically go out and get a, a DCC sound decoder and put the reefer sound in there and then you would be able to generate the sound. But the issue is that you know generally going to run at least fifty dollars you know to to get just the just that sound unit and that I we had to try to find something that was going to get the price point below the actual cost of, of the, the car and so uh, we found a chipset that we liked and uh, were able to, to use it now the thing that it does is that you know when you have something less expensive it's because it's less sophisticated so what this chipset is able to do is it is able to play a soundtrack and so it and it can play it over and over or it can play it you know in a random fashion as far as you can have several soundtracks on there and it can play the first one or the third one or the second one you know in in round robin order but it it does it's not as intelligent as say a a, a dcc type a decoder because those have the ability to for instance you can do things like you know feather the horn and uh, do things like you know, like the the hiss from the steam engine. The chuff can be synchronized with the wheels spinning, that sort of thing. We don't we don't have that intelligence on board, and that of course how we're able to offer something that's less expensive, but it's it also is not as capable as a a DCC locomotive decoder. However, for a reefer you generally don't need to have that level of sophistication. So what we're doing is we're trying to find, uh, we're trying to offer a product that is solid and does what it needs to do well, but is not something that has a whole lot of upper end capability. For instance, we, you can't do something like, okay, well, let's, here's a sound module and you can tell us whether you want to have a classic reefer or whether you want to have a modern reefer. That, we can't do that. So what we have to do is say, okay, here is a sound unit, and it is, has the sound preloaded for a classic reefer, and that's all it can do. We felt that the the odds that somebody is going to need to migrate one of the sound units from an old classic type reefer to one of the you know modern reefers is, is pretty pretty slim. Usually when you install it, you're going to pretty much leave it, and so and, and certainly you wouldn't want to have to pay another you know, fifty dollars just to have the option of maybe someday being able to, to migrate it. So the the thing that we've been able to do is, is to have a, a relatively simple circuit and uh, the thing we wanted to make sure was that it was bulletproof. And so what we did was um had it on a test bench and it ran oh my gosh, it ran for about three months twenty four seven. It just, you know, just to make sure, okay, this thing really is, and it, it hung in there the whole time. In fact, we ended up getting bored with it and just powered it off because I'm sure if I powered it up right now, it would run again. So it, it, because it's simple, it, there's, a lot, there's a lot less failure points. And so it would be able to it'll hang in there for, for, for a very long time. Begs the question, how am I going to get power to it? So <laughs> yes, that, that Streamline Backshop, people like that, Tomar, make great uh Power pickups for trucks. Right. Uh, ring engineering makes trucks. You think that's going to be one of the uh, 
add-ons a customer will just like if I go buy one of your modules to retrofit my cars, then it's going to be incumbent upon me to to make the trucks pick up. Or you think you might just roll that into your package? Well, the, we took a look at several different systems that are out there to try to get power from the rails sure. up into the car. Yeah. And there are some good ones out there. And the thing that we found was that the the, the trick, at a minimum, you want to try to have metal axles. And the reason for that was so you could put some kind of wiper there to be able to pull power from it. The other, one of the things that I have seen done is to have the wipers actually rubbing against the treads of the wheels. And that can work, um, but it's, it's more exacting because you don't want them to be ha- applying so much pressure that you now have all this drag produced. And you also do not want to have it necessarily a really thin wire rubbing against the tread because if it's in just that one place and it just rotates over and over and over again, unless you have some kind of, say, like a lubricant or a graphite or something there, it will act like a lathe eventually and just start wearing the metal away. So the, the thing that we found that seems to work the best would be to just have the wiper rubbing against the axle because the, even though the axle and the tread also rotate at you know, the same rate, the uh, surface speed, so to speak, uh, of the axle versus what's happening at the uh, on the surface of the tread is, is a lot less of the axle. And so, therefore, you've got less uh, friction, so to speak. And so what will happen is, is that you're, you, have, you have less likely to have like a lathe action when the thing's going to cut through. Also, you can add something like uh, Neal Lube or some of, the, some of the other electrically conductive lubricants. And what that does is the, the odds that you will have a problem from, from friction is, is pretty much eliminated. And if you use a electric, electrically conductive lubricant now, you've got the, the odds that you're going to have a break in your electrical contact reduced significantly. And then, of course, if you do both axles, now you've got that level of redundancy. So now you've really got uh, a good set of pickup from, from the trucks. So, I mean, um, technically a person could... Just have the, like say, uh, if you've got the wheel sets swapped, so to speak, so the insulators are on opposite sides, you could actually have just the one truck providing power to, to the car. But we recommend that you just you know, have both the insulators on the same side of that truck and then have them reversed on the other truck so that one truck provides track from you know, the left rail and the other truck provides track from the right rail. That way you've got redundancy also so that if you're going over some kind of like, you know, a turnout or a, a, a sketchy chunk of the track that's you know, not got the greatest electrical pickup, you won't have to worry about so much of the, um, you know, like having a dead spot. And also within our power conditioning circuit, we also have uh, keep a lot, which is um, something that basically is, is a capacitor that provides basically a, a battery. And so what it does, it gives you about two seconds of resistive power so that you could go over some turnout or a rough track. And what it'll do is it'll still keep the sound alive. It'll, it'll keep keep the power going for about two seconds. And so that, that's generally enough to get over most most uh, rough sections of track. Uh, now, can I ask a stupid question? Okay. <laughs> this is a essentially a boxcar, right? Right. The reefer is essentially a boxcar, correct? Right. Why not just put a battery in it? Well, to- it, that totally alleviates the whole 
power pickup and the possibility that this thing turns on and off. Now, in that in, in this particular case, a reefer turning on and off is not going to be quite as obnoxious as a locomotive Correct. restarting. Correct. Yes, yeah, that that was one of the things that we wanted to completely avoid. But you're right. It, it would it, it's not going to be a showstopper if you've got a, a burp in the sound that's coming from a reefer, especially if it's pretty much the same as it was before. Whereas, yes, with an engine, uh, a locomotive, you have the thing go into its restart procedure while it's going up a grade at run eight. It just, yeah, it, yeah. it really is obnoxious. So that, that was the thing we, we wanted to try to you know, offer that. And that was the other thing that we were trying to figure out, okay, do we offer this or not offer this? And I said, you know, if I was going to build this circuit for myself, I would put it in there. And so what we're going to do initially is to come out with the, a, a really good product that we think, okay, this has all the bells and whistles on it. And if we get feedback where people are saying, you know, I really don't need all of that other stuff, then we could start to basically derate that system and offer it as another option. And so that way it would cost less because it you know, has less components, but it has less features. So it just depends on, you know, what, what, what the market wants. So we, we, we can go that direction. Uh, how many milliamps does this does it draw, do you know? We, we took a look at just the uh, chipset itself. Um, this is before you've got all of the power conditioning equipment, but it draws like 20 milliamps, which okay. is not much. And, right. and, and, and so you could have a whole train of these, you know, a whole consist that uh, and it wouldn't you know it wouldn't exceed the, the power draw that, that would be the you know the maximum and also one of the things that you could do is, is say like you've got a consist of say 20 reefers you don't have to have one of these soundings in every single one because if you've got a consist sitting there would say like half of them have one of these sound units in it it gives that illusion especially if they're starting to start at different times and that sort of thing it will give you that illusion that every single one of these cars has sound in it and so it's it, it, and unless you're going to be running the cars singly or something then you you really don't need to have uh, one of these in, in, in every unit and uh, also you would want to be able to and you want to kind of you know turn the volume down a bit because uh, I don't know if you've, if you've ever been in a room where every single uh, locomotive has sound going full blast <laughs> it can it can start to get to be pretty distracting after a while you also don't want them to. Co you don't want them to compete with locomotives, right? Right. They they need to be relatively localized, right? And so that's that was that's the thing is, is that we and one of the things that we found was that uh, the we tried a whole bunch of different speakers and the railmaster folks, you know, just down there, they they really did it right uh, because the the bass you can get with their speakers just gives a real richness and presence. And that, that was, the, so we recommend, but that's the thing is we don't offer their speakers with our sound module because we thought, well, there might be people that are saying, well, you know, I've, I've got these other speakers sitting around that I want to use and I don't want to have to, you know, pay for the additional speaker because I've already got some. So we just thought, well, some people would, you know, want to have or not want to have, so we'll leave it up to them as far as, you know, what they, what they want to do. So, but yes, yeah, but speakers are a very, very important factor. Uh, because you've got all of that sound that's realistic. The last thing is to produce that sound is this wimpy speaker. Then it, it just it, it really degrades the, the sound quality. So, so depending on you know the person's threshold, then you know what, what they consider quality sound. But the 
the whale master speakers are really good. So we, we really highly recommend them. The other thing that we did was uh, we had the, the one of the reefers running uh, on the test bench, and we had the lights turned down. And I said, you know, it was one of those modern reefers. And I said, you know, it would be really, really cool if that little tiny display that's at the base of the reefer unit, if that little rectangle could, could glow. And so I did was I, I took one. Uh, took, the, took the reefer unit off of the car, drilled out that rectangle, filled it, backfilled it with uh, some micro, microscale crystal clear, and then backlit it with a green LED. <laughs> so now, you, it would, when you have it, I mean, it has to be very dimly lit to, to see it because uh, you don't want the thing, you know, as bright as, you know, some uh, a green signal on <laughs> track side or something. But it really does, it looks really neat. You know, when, you, when you've got a concept going by you know, on a dimly lit layout or he's coming out of a tunnel or something, you can see that. I and mean, it, it just kind of kind of takes that realism level to, to the next level. So it's kind of cool. It, I, I just think, I mean, I, of course, you have your own ideas, and this is just a, a thought, but the whole idea of trying to deal with track pickups is probably you could offer something that, you know, everything that fits in the boxcar and say, you know, here, you know, you can get the batteries. Somebody you may want to get in contact is Duncan McCree from Tan Valley Depot. Okay. He just removed all of the feeders off of his layout. So he runs his trains entirely off battery power. Wow. So HO scale trains entirely off battery power. So he was figuring that the, the sound systems in a locomotive take about 60 milliamps. And the way he has things set up, and he's using batteries out of uh, cell phone batteries. Mm-hmm. Uh, stuck in boxcars, uh, and MU to the locomotive, and they're like two bucks from not cell phone batteries, they're portable phone batteries. So like the phone you have at your house, that people oh. used to have at your house, you know, oh, okay. cordless gotcha. phones, cordless phones. Right. Um, that type of battery, which are like two bucks at Radio Shack. Um, you could put one of those in there, and if you're saying that your unit only draws 20 milliamps, 20, 30 milliamps, the thing will run for hours. Right. Put a, you know, you include a battery and a switch, and you know when you want to turn it on, you turn on the switch, and and just totally alleviate the whole draw and track power, and just say you know once every week, you know depending on how much you use your train, how much you use your reefers, pull the battery out and charge it. That is right. That was one of the things that we looked at was the possibility of trying to have something that would be, I mean, say for instance, one of the things that could be done is, is to have the cards set up where one of them has a battery in it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's now uh, got electrical pickup so that you can have a recharging circuit that would recharge that battery, that, you know, running your rail dead, and then have some wires that are connecting the, the rest of the, of the cars in the console so that they could have, now they've got power. So, yes, that, that would be one way to do it. So, But I think that... The, the issue comes with, uh, you know, now you've got them wired together, so do you have to have some kind of, you know, plugs to be able to unplug them and that, that sort of thing. So, but it, about, uh, yes, that is an option. And, if, and, if, and TCS, TCS train control systems actually makes micro plugs that I'm using, I'm retrofitting into N-scale locomotives in the MU cable. They actually are only slightly larger than the uh, than an MU cable and end scale. Wow. So, 
yeah, probably twice the size, but it's they're not, if not grotesquely huge. Or <laughs> okay. I was able to drill out on a B on an Atlas B twenty three seven. I was able to drill out the MU blap, you know, that, that covers the plug. I was able to drill that out slightly, install this plug, and it's not, you know, ferociously noticeable. It's probably twice the size of the plug, and then I'll have the other locomotive. What I'm going to do is I'm going to gut one locomotive and just put a keep alive circuit in it and uh, run the quote-unquote MU cable to the other locomotive so that, you know, when you hit a dirty spot, it just keeps running. And so instead of using a boxcar, which TCS has a... Uh, a, a, a tutorial on how to put it, how to put the tip, the the thing into a boxcar. I'm going to use the second locomotive and just use two MU'd, quite literally MU'd locomotives. They have another plug that's slightly larger than that, mm-hmm. if you wanted to use it. So though the the plug is available. Right. That's the, so we're we're trying to trying to I, part part of the thing is just to figure out what the market is looking for. And, and of course, ideally, we'd be able to just put the unit in there, and it maybe you know gets recharged through radio waves or something. You know, I mean, just where there's there's a real minimal of fuss as far as trying to you know get power from track or uh, trying to recharge the batteries. Well, and the other thing, I mean, we always think of in terms of triple A's, double A's, but the circular batteries that are out there, like twenty thirty twos and so forth, that are only a couple millimeters thick. I mean, yeah, if you built the battery clip on the underside of the car, you've got your switch either wireless or whatever. Yeah, you don't have to take the car apart to uh, change out the battery. Okay, certainly something you're thinking about. The way Duncan deals with it is uh, he puts the battery into boxcars and gondolas uh, where it's easy to... Uh, well, boxcars where the door's open. Yeah, there you uh, go. So he can just get inside the car to, you know, pull the batteries out and, and charge them. Or gondolas where he puts a load over it so you don't see the batteries. Tricky. Yeah. Well, Jimmy, I bet you you've got a question or two to ask Dave about what other applications this technology might have. Yeah, actually, what other technology? So, well, your favorite topic <laughs> that you want to add to yeah, the, the realism of model railroad? But I don't think it would work for that. I really don't think it. Why wouldn't it? Okay, we're talking about flat spots. No flat spots, it would work for. That no, no. Oh, I think it. Would no, be. that would be great. When I saw uh, Dave's exhibit. Chris and I looked at each other and went, "Jim, I like this potential for flat stop recording." No, that would flat be good. Spot. Flat stop have flat spots. I bet it would work for flat spots. I bet if you got real tricky and your and your track yeah. was super elevated. Yeah. Put a put some sort of pendulum inside the car and have it play squealing wheels as as the car Ooh. as the cars go around corners. <laughs> oh, the monster is out of the cage. I'm uh, not the right person to talk to. Yeah, yeah, but I think the idea of good grief, who hadn't been coal cars, uh, topsy copsy equipment going by just booming away because somebody was too well, lazy to release the uh, handbrake. Well, that's well. There, there you go. You could do. Uh, yeah, you could add that too. Uh, <laughs> but you could uh, add a handbrake. You know, that could be that would be interesting if you could have different settings. And I know the um, the decoders you were saying are not particularly complicated. Correct. No, they they don't have the onboard intelligence to be able to do some of the things that uh, are more sophisticated. And the, I mean, well, even even if it only did one sound, though. You know, Correct. If it, Correct. if it did one sound like flat wheels, 
then you have a car that does flat wheels. Right. You know, that's all. I mean, if it, if it was – the trick with that is that it would have to be inexpensive enough where somebody would want a car with flat wheels. Oh, or um, because Lionel does have um, cars that do wheel squeal when they go around corners. It actually has something on the trucks that senses when the, the trucks turn. Perfect. And so then I don't know how they do it, but they and then it the wheels will squeal uh, as they go around corners. So that, that's a that's a neat feature, and I mean, just about every rail fan that's been trackside has uh, had to has experienced that once or twice, right. and yep. so that that would be definitely a, a neat thing. I mean, it would be interesting if you could figure out some way to do that using that to say, hey, you know, add this into a covered hopper, and you know, because that's a sound that's not going to play all the time. Although on a model railroad, it probably would. Um, only right. because we have so many curves and right. not as much, not many straight. So you just have to have something that only would play the sound when it would turn a certain, you know, degree. Right. Uh, but if you mean, if you could figure that out, that would be another application for the yes. technology. I agree. Yeah, that's, that was the thing is, is to try to have the, as, as the trucks turn a specific radius, then some kind of a sensor could be as simple as some kind of a wiper. But uh, it would, it would, would hit that stop and say, "Okay, I've now turned enough." What would be really nice is to have if it's if you have it turn even further past that start point, that it gets louder or something. Right. That and that would start to get to be much more realistic. So. Yep. And yep. So that, so having 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 sensors built into the car, the it, those those kind of things, uh, they could be optical and it could be mechanical. But I mean, it's just trying to figure out how to how to best do that. Uh, and, and make it to where it's something that's retrofittable. Um, that that's the key. So. And cheap. Correct. Correct. That, that. Well, reasonable. Well, let's say probably it's not going to be cheap, but at least reasonable to do on, you know, a couple of cars. Yes. That that that's, yeah. that is that is the key. Just is trying to make it affordable for folks to to be able to say, yeah, I I would like to do that. And Somebody might do thirty bucks. They probably won't do a hundred. Right. That, that's the trick, is just to try to keep it low enough so that people believe that, okay, this, this is something that I, I can do. Mm-hmm. Well, then it's the uh, the scale of it. You know, you don't need that many to add that kind of really cool ambiance to the uh, session. Uh, the other thing that struck me was uh, generators on private or on passenger cars. Yes. Even if you're into the 50s or so forth, now nah, that would have been battery then. Um, That's true. Oh, but Jim, you it, probably know. How about some of the uh, no passenger cars, uh, air conditioning units? Oh, okay. There they're, we go. Um, because they're essentially they're just on all that they they you know. For instance, our double decker cars make when when the AC is on make ungodly amounts of noise. It's it's amazing how much noise, particularly in, when you're inside the car, when you turn the, the blowers off, how quiet it is. You don't realize how much noise is constantly there right. until you turn off the blowers. And outside, particularly in a station, very loud, particularly when you get a bunch of the coaches together. That's true. But that would be definitely an application, you know, get the sound off, uh, you know, the, the Amfleet cars, the 
the superliner cars, which are you know the more common, whatever people run, you know, get the sound off of those and see if you could apply this to that as well. Right, and that's that, that's one of the that's probably the, the next phase of of products that we'd be looking at it is is to address the, the passenger car market. And the the beauty there is that a lot of those cars are already lit. You know, they already have some kind of power pickup to light the interior. Right. And so just, you know, being able to find enough room to put one of these sound modules in and a place for a speaker, that's your set. And so, yes, and uh, I, I was talking with um, uh, Jim over at um, uh, Railmaster, and he was saying that he, uh, I guess the high-level cars that they that they use uh, in a Super Chief, uh, those those were during the days before head-in power was was uh, the norm, and they most of those cars would would have some kind of generator on board to keep air conditioning and, and, and other types of power going. And like the dining car actually had two generators because they had to have the kitchen with all electric, you know, uh, ovens and that sort of thing. So there they had quite a few. Uh, generators on board, so that's that's perfect. Uh, the thing that he he did say was that you would want to be able to power them all off at the same time uh, instead of you know having it just sitting and running and running and running. So like if you pull it into like um, a staging yard or something like that, and you just want it to be quiet. Uh, and so the the other thing that we've been looking at is the uh, potential of doing some kind of a DCC type of an interface. Because uh, currently the one that we have is just sort of it sees power from the track, it runs. If it doesn't see power, it doesn't run. Uh, the next generation will be ones where we we actually are able to not just turn the unit on and off, but able to adjust the volume up and down with uh, a DCC handset. And we've got one on test bench that's very very promising. And so we're that that that'll be the next generation of, of product that we come out with. Yeah, the interesting thing, possibly, particularly with a passenger train, which, which in you know, in your, what you were talking about, uh, you know, if you're going to take the passenger train into staging and it's going to sit, you might be able to have find some way to detect when the train is moving, right? And after say two minutes, shut the shut the sound off. Sure. Because yeah, you'll, you'll make a station stop, and that'll right. you know, right. on a model model railroad, you're not going to be making a passenger station train space station stop probably more than five minutes right so if you had it in there where it will automatically shut off after five minutes if the train is not moving and then detect if the train's moving again oops turn it back on right that, that would that would be a simpler uh, circuit yes and then that would would not require uh, DCC and right. uh, one of the things that I also did a, when I did the uh, survey at the clinic at the WPM was I asked how many folks are running DC and how many running DCC and the majority were were running DCC and so we what we're trying to do is we're trying to address that the, that market to where you can have your DCC handset actually controlling features of of this of this equipment and so uh, but you know that that and so that's, I think that's the, the, the thing, of course, we're bringing up first. Well, as I pointed out, the battery one would be compatible with everything. Correct. The other thing is, if, if you're talking to a prototype modeler crowd, I would bet you money that 
probably 70 to 80 percent of them are DCC. Yeah. However, that doesn't mean what the rank and file modeler, which in in many ways I'm I don't mean this derogatorily, but since this is a novelty, there are many non really serious modelers that say, "Oh, this is cool. I want it." Mm-hmm. You know, I want it on my train that runs and runs around in circles, and they're probably not running DCC. Right. So you have to be careful that you're, in my opinion, uh, that you may not be, you know, leaning towards one market that, you know, it was the majority of what you saw. But every time you go to a, uh, an RPM, you, that's what you're going to see because they're more serious modelers, by and large. Correct. Know? Right. We do. What we're trying to do is we're, you know, of course, trying to hit the largest market possible. Right. And right. So the the units that we're offering. Now they actually are compatible with, with uh, either either throttle technology. Um, so the but the if we can offer another technology that right. allows you more functionality, then I, I think that that would be uh, oh absolutely yes sorry. But you're you're right. We're we're trying not to exclude anybody just based on uh, what they're, what, the, what particular throttle they're running. Uh, but the the thing is is that the uh, the DCC folks, there's, I mean, the the potential that it has as far as level of control, especially with things electronic, is just amazing. Because, I mean, right. you've got basically an onboard computer, and so you can really leverage that technology to do some pretty amazing things that, you know, nobody would have even dreamed of years ago. So, the I mean, you know, the fact that we're you know, actually, people are saying things like, well, I, I don't I don't want to just have you know, sound in my locomotive, I want to make sure that it's a specific prime mover and I want to make sure that it's, you know, the recording has been made under load, you know, so it's not just right. the sound. I mean, people are getting to that level where they're really wanting to have their rail, rail fan experience when they're trackside to be duplicated in miniature. And so that, that seems to be the almost like the litmus test. And so that, that's, what we're, that's where we're trying to go. And that's great. It's, that's great. Go ahead. Where do, where do people go? And I think this is where we want to give them the website address uh, to see what you've got and how to get so, it. Uh, our website is frozen-audio.com. And the, uh, the website is, uh, is a work in progress. Uh, but we've got sound samples on it, and we also have a, some explanations of uh, what realistic sound is, because that's one of the things that will help people to more fully appreciate the sounds that we do have. And then we also have a reservations page, because right now what we're doing is we're, we're taking reservations for, uh, for the sound modules. And the thing that we're doing is we're, we're only going to offer the ones that we have accurate sounds for right now. And uh, so the sound, the sound that we have that is, is accurate is the one of the, the modern reefer that is running in continuous mode. And so that, that although we're going to take reservations for the, the modern reefer running start-stop and for the classic reefer running in demand mode, which is pretty much the only mode that it ran in. Um, this will be, we're still in the process of getting uh, some soundtracks of those. What you'll hear on the website are examples that we've got uh, in the, in the, the, the video. Those are sounds that I pulled off of the internet. 
And so the fair use states that you can take those sounds and you can you know, just play them back and, and, and do it for documentation purposes. But I can't take those sounds and put them into a device like digitally and then try to sell that device to somebody because now I'm taking somebody else's content and I'm trying to sell it for my own personal gain. So that's stepping over the line. So what we're doing is we, uh, in fact, if you don't mind, I'd like to put a shout out to, <laughs> to your listeners um, uh, for anybody that has access to one of the classic reefers uh, as far as the the ones that are running the Detroit Diesel 2-71 engine, the, it, it doesn't have to be like on the rail. For instance, you could, you could even be one of those ones that they took the trucks off and they have it setting someplace as a, like an outbuilding, you know. Uh, but if it's operating, that's that's exactly what we're looking for. Because what we want to be able to do is, is to make a recording of that generator set under load, so it, having it ramp up and run and then go back down to idle. Now and, you're talking you're talking about the like the ARMN coaches. I mean, cars. well, the well the ones right the, the older ones, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the the current ones, the ones where they retrofit, where they've taken out the the old uh, Detroit diesel generator set and put in one of the carrier units. Yeah, those, yeah. Aren't, those aren't the ones that we're looking for. Right. Uh, the uh, in in fact, what they did with a lot of those when they're doing the upgrades, they would pull those generator sets out and they were operating. And what they did was they put them on the secondary market. And uh, there were a lot of people that want to have a large generator, backup generator, for the power goes out. And so they, a lot of people purchased those. And so if somebody has one of those, that's perfect because that's exactly the kind of generator set, whether it's setting in a reefer or not, the sound is exactly the same. And so that that would also be a, a very good candidate for, for us to, to try to get a recording of. And so if anybody has that, please uh, contact us. Um, the, the website has the, my email address, dave.donaldson at frozen-audio.com. What's your timeline for when you think you'll be uh, fully commercialized with well, this? Well, what we're doing is, is we're trying to take a look at the what the market's doing. We're hoping by the end of the summer. But... But I hate okay. when you know other manufacturers of our railroad products have come out with timelines and they're just you know not going to happen. So I, I'm really reluctant to try to come out with something like a definite date. The thing that we're looking at is probably by the end of the summer. The the other part of it that might drive it is, for instance, uh, if one of the manufacturers of say modern reefers uh, want that has a production run that's coming up and they they want to have one of our sound modules offered in, in some of their units that are ready to run, then that may boost our uh, our schedule to where we're actually trying to get something out sooner. But what we're, what we're trying to do is, is we're trying to make sure that what we come out with is, is well accepted and is something that makes a very good first impression because we, you know you really only have one chance to make a good first impression. We're trying to be cautious about you know what what we're putting out and testing it and making sure that it's going to work. For instance, what we don't want to do is say, oh, well, yeah, take you know, 10 of these and put them, string them out through a, a cost of 20 cars, and then it turns out that their power draws so much that you know you can't run your engine. <laughs> so, so the thing we have to do is we have to test everything along the way and make sure that it's, it works in the real world and so that it's not just a, some sort of theoretically neat idea. Yeah, along that line, that um, I, I still would highly recommend you um, 
tried to get a hold of uh, Duncan McCree from Tam Valley Depot only because of what he's doing with battery power and everything because I think that's that's what I would really be interested in with these. Okay. Uh, you know, mainly because push came to shove, you just, you know, you, you pull the pull the battery out, you know, whatever. I mean, as long as it's, it's uh, particularly if there's a switch on it, then I think that's where you would need to, because you know, then you don't have to worry about compatibility, you don't have to worry about anything. If you need a new battery, go, you know, because they have things, you can buy clips from, you know, Radio Shack that you can pop in a couple of rechargeable double A's. So, uh, depending on the, you know, and I think a double A is 120 milliamp hours. Yeah, that is an option. I mean, we, we, because our Sonia doesn't really care where the power comes from necessarily. Right. needs to have some power. So, right. yes, that, that would be one of the things that we're going to do on the website is to have a, like, how-to video as far as installation. And so, so yes, yeah, one of the things we could do is we could actually have a how-to. Here's, here's a battery option as far as right. how how to install this and and with the battery option trying to figure out something about either replacement of the battery or recharging of the battery while it's still in the car that kind of thing mm -hmm. uh, you know or or is the uh, battery located as you suggested in uh, a gondola that has a, a load that you can remove and, and get at the battery quickly so there's there's different options as far as how to to get this implemented and that's one of the things that we're finding is that for us to get the hardware right and get the sound right, that's just the start. <laughs> because right. there's so many other things that on the periphery that affect its, its implementation and, and the customer experience. And so trying to get all of those things, the system is more of a holistic approach. Uh, that's, that's the key. Yeah, I find that even with on a, on a separate subject, separate instance a lot of times anytime you're trying to design something to be produced it's like you know okay yeah you know this is okay and this is okay but you didn't think about x right <laughs> uh and now you've got to deal with x and oh now that you've dealt with x y has appeared and yeah. and don't forget about z yeah or i forgot who where the quote's from but it, i think it might, might have been albert einstein but it basically was um as a circle of light grows larger, the circumference of darkness around it grows larger as well. <laughs> so as you begin to get more and more into a project, there are more and more things that become possible or options or things that can start to make become tangential. And some of those some of those things are worth pursuing and some of them may not be. It, it becomes you know, sort of trying to figure out where you want your resources to go and that sort of thing. But right. I, I think that there are... are uh, a lot. I mean, the, the neat thing is the technology is out there now to do this stuff. It's just trying to figure out a way to apply it and to put it into some sort of a, a package that allows people to implement quickly and easily. And so the trying those things out and, you know, like, like a lot of small railroaders, uh, we're tinkerers. We like to play with things and, and try to modify things. And so... Uh, so this this is this is born out of that. So it's pretty neat. Right, but then again, then again, you have the entire. I don't want to mess around with things. I want it straight out of the box crowd. So you have the group of tinkerers that you need to placate, and the I want it out of the box crowd. You have to placate. Right. Yes. And the question is, is which one's going to pay you more money? Yeah, that's that's the trick is to try to figure out the crowd that's out there and which ones. Uh, are, are are wanting this to product and, as you say, willing to pay for it. Right. Uh, it's kind of like, who was it? 
No, I can't. Th- uh, George Clooney. George Clooney was saying he makes Ocean the Ocean movies. Yes. He makes Ocean's Eleven so he can do Serena, or I think that was the the name. The 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 movies that he really wants to do, the the more interesting intricate ones. Yes. He does the box office, the ones that do great at the box office, the Ocean's films, the things like right. that. Right. He does that so he can do the stuff he really wants to do. Sure. Sure, and that, there's there's a certain logic to that because you you have, you know you can't pay your bills, but then exactly. he's an artist and he wants to be able to make you know some sort of artistic statement and, and be able to stretch himself you know as far as different character roles and that sort of thing. Right. So right. yes, similarly, one of the things that we're wanting to do is to try to address the mass market and the art the ready to run folks. Uh, but the the other thing is that the this I mean, we really are just kind of scratching the tip of the iceberg. And as far as this is just, you know, man, this is really, there's so much below the surface that could be done. And it just starts to open up this potential for some really, really neat stuff. And part part of it is a hardware issue, trying to get the hardware right. But the other part of it also is just trying to secure the right soundtracks. Um, for instance, I, I live in an area that there's uh, quite a few pre-cooling stations for produce where the produce comes out of the field and they pre-cool it and they load it into a reefer truck. And so I've been very tempted to go over to one of those uh, pre-cooling stations and start to ask the, the truckers if I could record, you know, some of uh, their equipment running. And um, But the problem is, is that you have to tell them, well, I can't do it here because the, you know, when the forklifts are backing up, they're making beeping noises and there's other trucks in the area that are revving their engines and getting ready to start. I need to be able to isolate, you know, this one sound. So we have to take your truck someplace isolated. <laughs> yeah, that's going to fly like a lead balloon. Yeah, it's just not going to work. And so and so, what you have to do is, you know, you have to know somebody who knows somebody who you know, is a trucker or has access to reefer trucks or whatever. And so the because you, you really, I mean, the way to do it is just to do video because now you can actually videotape yourself in front of you know, from the camera and turn it towards the a reefer unit and then actually record it. So now it's that's pretty much proof positive. Yes, this is a soundtrack we developed ourselves. We, we got the raw material. We were able to you know, pull the, the soundtrack off the video and, and that's actually what we're using. So it, it, it's pretty hard to contest that. And so that that's the thing that we're, we're trying to do is, is to be careful also about the you know the, the origin of that so that it's uh, something that can be proven. And so you know so, so there's no way that I can just go and start pulling stuff off the internet. That's you know that, that's not that's not a source that you want to use. And right. and, and even having people who have shot their own video that's kind of iffy as well because you're not sure okay did you shoot the video or are you taking the video from someplace else and saying you shot it? I mean, there's there's a whole lot of stuff involved in trying to do this whole copyright thing. And the last thing that, you know, we want to see is some sort of a letter coming to us with lawyer letterhead saying, you know, cease and desist because you're you know, ripping off my client's soundtrack or something. And so, you know, of course, we wouldn't do it knowingly, but I mean, that, you know, right. it can't happen. It's, it's interesting because uh, there's, I seem to think there's a fairly decent number of the the older style ARMN reefers that I'm around. I don't work. Yes, 
I don't work for a freight railroad anymore, but I have close access to it. Wow. Shall we say? Doesn't mean that it would be easily isolated. In right. fact, there's a, there's an industry in town, Boston, that frequently the only thing they get are the older style ARMN reefers. Wow. That I don't know what units are in them, because when I'm you know I'm going by on a train and I'm looking at them, you know. But that also means they're in Reedville. But you know you're going to have ambient noise. There's no way it's a rail yard. There's not. It's kind of hard to isolate. Them. Right. That's and in fact I um, was reading stories about how some of the folks uh, like like a Bruce on the um, MRH uh, magazine, uh, my railroad hoggist, he does the uh, DCC uh, segment. A Bruce Petrarca. He. Uh, was, was one of his segments was on what it takes to put sound in a decoder, and he was saying how the you know, companies would go to the expense of you know flying somebody out to a railroad museum and they get their own sound equipment and they put them up for the night and this kind of stuff and they actually go out there and actually record. I just thought, wow, that seems like an awful lot. But now now that I'm on the other side of that, I get it. <laughs> I understand why they're doing that. Partly partly is to isolate the sound. The other part of it is. Or the, the legal side of it, and so yeah, there's, there's a lot more to this uh, putting out a product thing than uh, than I'd anticipated. But um, it, uh, it, it, it it's a, it's a neat learning process, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of potential out there for some pretty neat stuff. And, and you need some really neat people. Along. Well, I think probably what we ought to do is, as you guys close in on the uh, the actual. You know, kickoff date is probably come back and revisit this with an update uh, and just at that time talk about, okay, again, here's the website. Here's how you order this. By then, you might have some more information on some of the partnership, you know, collaborations with some of the other manufacturers out there. But if you're going to go direct, then, you know, we could get that uh out before the people uh, so they could start actually buying, you know. Revenue streams are highly underrated, but... I'd like nothing better than to do some uh, a follow-up where we're actually doing a uh, product release <laughs> announcement, and uh, that, that would be terrific, so... Okay, well, just keep us in mind that's... Uh, you know, as the date approaches and stuff, just shoot me an email, and uh, so we can start coordinating with uh, Jim and uh, Chris and so forth. Chris couldn't be here for this session because the he's slacker. doing a setup at uh, San Bernardino slacker. on the, the Fremo meet. Slacker. <laughs> <laughs> I told him you and I'd pick up his slack. Mm-hmm. So, well, I had a couple buddies from Phoenix, actually. They're with the Fremo group here that are going over at that. Uh, I would have liked to have gone, but, yeah, my wife will be home sh- shortly and still not enough time for the dogs to live on their own, you know? So, well, Dave, I tell you what, I appreciate your time today. I think it's incredibly uh, interesting, and it's just, it's yet another phase to the... Uh, to the hobby, and I do. I look forward to uh, trying out a unit or two. I'll take it down to the store's display railroad, and 
looks like today there must have been between uh, the opening at 10 and I left about noon after working on the railroad. So I'm, I think there must have been 100 people in there, in and out. And all we do are model trains. And um, once I fire up the DCC and they start hearing uh, diesels or steam, whatever I'm running in the background, you know, they're, the guys are just kind of like the walking dead. They're just kind of ambling towards the back. And the wives are going, where are you going? So, you know, I'm sure if I fired up a reefer or two back there, it uh, then it gives, uh, you know, you get a communication channel going, and then this guy tells this guy, this guy tells this guy. Okay, and uh, next thing you know, you get people in from the clubs going, hey, what is this? And you help spread the word on it. So looking forward that's to that. One of the things that's great about the Internet is that it's, it's, we've been able to, to leverage that because in the old days you would, you know, before the internet, you would have to have a you know full marketing department and get into everybody's catalog and get in distributors list and that kind of thing, and that that could take a very long time. And so, but with the with the internet, you're you're able to get out in front of your target audience relatively quickly. And, and but it is double-edged sword because in the same way that you can talk to folks and say, "Here's what I'm offering," the other thing is that well, if what you're offering is not what they expected, then they can also come back and say, don't buy this thing because it's just it's not worth it. Yes, it's not worth having. So the so that's the other reason that we're being cautious is because, you know, even though we've done due diligence as, as far as we can see at our end to make sure that it's going to be a good product, there could be something that happens, you know, say for instance it goes out to the south or maybe there's higher humidity and that causes some issue that we weren't anticipating. So, I mean, those kind of things. So, we'll, we'll probably be beta testing uh, with some folks and just, you know, just to try to make sure that there isn't some kind of issue with, you know, the installation or uh, that there might be something we can do to fine-tune it. And that way, we're, we're you know, going to try to try to make make it as, as good a product as we possibly can. We're trying to make it a product we would want to own. And uh, that's, that's part of, uh, you know, since we, <laughs> we're making a product, we have control over that. So, therefore, you know, within reason, we're going to try to, to make it uh, a really good product and, you know, cost-effective as well. So, so even with that, um, as long as your service is good and responsive, even if you stumble a little out of the gate, there's like, like you say, it goes down south and, you know, a bunch of people are having issues because of humidity. Okay. As long as you're responsive with how you deal with it, Right. That can go in your favor. You can make a mistake, and as long as you're, particularly in the in the, the this age now, as long as you're responsive to that error and fix the people's complaints, yes, they'll love you. Yes, that, that, that's one of the things we've also found is that if you are are responsive to uh, some an issue that develops with the product, and you make it good, people will also be giving you uh, the benefit of the doubt. And so, the, like you say, if there is uh, something that you stumble out of the gate, then there there is uh, some grace period. So, and so I'm hoping that, that we'll try to keep those to a minimum, but just like any other type of a you know, device, that's, any product that's halfway complicated, there are points of failure. So. Well, all right. Again, thanks for your time. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate it. And yours, Jim, too. Thank you very much for welcome. Hello, this is actor Michael Gross, and you're listening to the Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. 
Welcome back. Going to have a little bit of general discussion. Uh, Dave actually hangs around and uh, joins in the fun. Later on, we will be uh, joined by Chris, and he'll give us an update uh, on the Fremo meet over at San Bernardino. So let's get back to the fun. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Jimmy, you know how we talked the last time about getting the 645 uh, Timon under load? Uh, going back in and tweaking some of the information from the professor. The, uh, I took a, uh, tsunami and I put a GN board into a, a rate of run 45. And after tweaking on the, uh, equalizer quite a bit, I had people literally walking back today going, what is that noise? Where's that coming from? Because I had uh, the 45 and one other unit back there. And you could uh, very distinctly hear the prime mover just laboring. Mm-hmm. And, of course, when you play around with manual notching, you can uh, highlight that even right. more. Your comments last time from uh, Mike Confluent, just worth their weight in gold, that was brought up on one of the uh, MRH threads the other night. In fact, Confluent was on there. Dave, to your point about making sure the sound files are are right, uh, my Confluent was on the pulpit uh, in uh, one of the things about guys who put out, you know, improper sound files and, uh, like, not under load where they're just notching up through a, a, a unit uh, – not working and stuff. So yeah, Mike was pretty uh, pretty outspoken about that. Right. Mainly so. because mainly because when you go to do it, the only reason it isn't right is because they were lazy. That's yeah. it. Absolutely. They, you know, they just didn't want to go through the extra effort to do it right. You know, and you're gonna go if you're gonna go do it, go do it right. And there's a yep. there's the quote that goes, and it sounds like you're doing things right so that that's great um but you know the quote that why is it that we never have time we never have the time to do it right but we always have the time to do it over yeah yeah that's right to uh, redo it. you yes. know so i don't have enough time to get this done we'll just you know we'll just do this and it's like because some, you know you're going to have to go back in and fix it anyway so why don't you just take the time right <laughs> but what people do, I think you you kind of addressed it, is you're not giving a deadline to anything because you don't want to put in an unrealistic deadline. Right. And I think that's what people do. Yeah, I think it's wise. Okay, I think that, I mean, gosh, we've been, I mean, I have been wanting something like this for decades. So, you know. I was amazed since the 70s. Holy so, cow. So to, <laughs> to actually wait a little bit longer to try to get it right, I I, I really think that it's, it's, worth, it's worth the time invested because it, it can be done uh, sort of just slipshod or it can be mm-hmm. done to where you're actually doing your homework. And I'm, and I'm trying to do my homework to try, I mean, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, like, in fact, Paul, one of the things you talked about at the, at the WPM was that while it brings nitpicking to a whole other level where you could say something like, um, is that reefer running strawberries, which would be in <laughs> continuous mode, uh, about 37 degrees? I mean, 
the, the that's it's a whole other level. And so what we want to be able to do is if somebody comes and says that sounds not accurate in the same way that you, somebody says there need to be five rivets instead of six, you know, in this one corner of the car, you want to be able to have the evidence to be able to say, well, this is what, this is why I think that sounds correct. And then be able to defend what, what you've got. And I think if you do it in a way that, you know, you're, uh, maybe you're agreeing to disagree, but what you're doing is, is you're saying, well, this is my case. This is what I'm, I'm presenting as the reasons why this this is accurate, and hopefully hopefully you'll convince the person because maybe you've got some information that they don't have. Sure. Well, when you get closer, uh, if you need some units beta tested, you know, like I said, I've got a number of of reefers. Give me a scream, I'll. Paul, thank you. Yes, you would. Do a uh, you know a field. Uh, Install. We'll check it yes, out. In fact, that, that would be great for uh, for us to. Well, I'll come up with the how-to videos, and then you could actually uh, go to the you know to our website, and, and I could send you a couple of units, and then try to you know see if if that will help uh, you know, with the install. And uh, yeah, I mean, we just need to make it easy for people out there. I mean, you know, Jimmy and Chris and I, I'm sure, you know, would have no trouble putting it in, matching the speaker and all that kind of stuff. But there will be people who want to do it that will, you know, be doing the uh, YouTube searches. So, yeah, make it easy for yes, them to no, do I, it. I, want, I want to make sure that we've got the uh, – I mean, if, if the unit itself is, is, is functional but it's not installed in an optimal fashion, then that can be an issue. So, um, for instance, one of the things in uh, the the Atherin install was that the the I, I didn't see any uh, holes in the floor for the sound to come out, and so it, the sound kind of echoed around inside the car. And the what we do what we do is actually you know you drill a hole so that the sound just blasts right out the bottom of the car and try to have it towards the A end of the car so that that your ear abilities, okay, that's localized and the sound's coming from, from the reefer unit itself. And so the, the trying to optimize the sound can be as simple as drilling some holes, you know, in, in the floor. And so trying to get that, well, part of it's experimentation, but the other part of it is, is you know, just trying to kind of see, see what makes sense. Um, Look at, here's the suggestion, and you, from your business model, have got to, determine whether it's appropriate but on uh, we were on one of the forums discussing the uh, the sound files and so forth and I posed it to Professor Kleiser Jimmy's buddy there over in Australia I said well maybe what is prudent is for i.e. soundtracks uh, look sound whomever uh, to tailor the sound profile to the speakers. Maybe even recommend, hey, you'll get best results with a Railmaster DSM-8 at these equalizer settings. You know, and kind of coach the people uh, 
because I'm not one of those guys that just throws a speaker in there and, you know, walks away. I, I want it to sound good. And so, so sometimes you give them some help. Hey, you need at least a 16 millimeter speaker or, or whatever the size yeah, we, is. We will, um, we will end up recommending the, I mean, the, the speakers that we end up using, um, with a Railmaster, it's the DHB 28 box. Oh, I tell you what, I put those in my E yeah, units because they, they, they sound so good. Oh man, they're just really nice. And plus, it has an enclosure already, so you don't have to deal with oh, you know, is my interior of my, you know, the shell is it completely sealed and all that kind of stuff. No, you just have as long as you've got you know one end of the. Um, uh, as long as you've got one end of, of a speaker uh, isolated, that you know, and it doesn't have to be a gigantic enclosure; it just has to enclose the back of the, of the speaker, and so it it, it makes it yeah, it makes a huge difference. And, the, and, and I've even done that to where it plays sounds on uh, on a, on the computer through the headsets, and they sound great. But as soon as I load them into the sound module and install them in the reefer and play them through a smaller speaker, it didn't sound right. And so, like, for instance, it had too little volume, let's say. And that's one of the things about the Railmaster speakers is they have a pretty big magnet behind them. And what that means is that they're less efficient. So, in other words, you put in the same amount of sound, let's just say, to a lesser speaker that's more efficient. It'll sound louder. And, and whereas with the Railmasters, it, it, the sound will be good, but it'll just be the volume will be diminished. So what you have to do is take that sound file and crank up the gain so that you're essentially turning up the amount of volume in, in that file so when you play it through that speaker, it sounds louder. And so, yes, being able to tune the file to the specific speaker, that can really help maximize the amount of sound that you're going to be producing and the quality of it. And so, yeah, so that, that's what we would end up doing is just is recommending the, you know, those Railmasters and they're, they're terrific. And the nice thing is they also, they fit great within the shell of the roof. Um, so, so they work out very nicely. Uh, so it, it's, it's, and, you know, it, it, he did it right where they, they, they went through and they basically, you know, went to speaker manufacturers and said, we need to have the, most bass you can produce in a speaker this small. <laughs> and because I'm, I'm sure that most of the speaker manufacturers were kind of thinking, well, why would you need that much bass coming from a dinky little speaker like that? I think, well, I'm not sure a model railroad, you probably wouldn't get it. Well, and he owns like probably the box, the DSM-8. He actually owns the tooling for the injection molded oh, really? component. <laughs> Yeah, because I I had queried him on an install where I needed something different. He goes, well, he said, this is the tooling I've invested in, and which I and I went, okay, I understand uh, on that. So I had to take another another tack, but um, yeah, it's uh, shoot, something just I was getting ready to make a comment, and my mind just. Went blank. Well, they, uh, they pretty much own the, you know, high-end speaker market for, I mean, worldwide. I mean, they're they're very well known, and so they've, he's found a really nice niche. 
Well, yeah, he has dealer-level pricing. So you'll find like Ulrich and uh, even Micromark carry his products. And so I bought one and two of almost everything he had and put it in locomotives, took them in to the owner of uh, an affair with Trey and said, here, Bob, you if you want to be serious about DCC, you need to have something more than the standard soundtracks speaker out there with no enclosure. Because people ask me, well, where can I buy those? Do you guys sell them if I'm there? I go, no, we're not carrying them yet, but here's where you can go buy them. Litchfield carries them, a lot of people. I mean, depends. Maybe, you know, it's Bob's business model, but if you're going to be in DCC sound, especially for people who want it to sound more than just average, yeah, you got to carry the the right equipment right. for it. And, I mean, plus you've, you've spent how many hundreds on the engine and, you know, pretty close to 100 on the coder itself. So spending, what, 13 bucks on a decent speaker? <laughs> oh, yeah, $12.50? Good heavens, yeah, that's, that's a no-brainer. That's like Jimmy there goes and makes his own uh, for, what do you call it, Proto 48, yes. Jimmy? When he's doing his track work, because Jim does a lot of track work for people like Mike Rose and others. And on his own, he has a lot of... Uh, 3D printing files because he makes insane detail parts for his turnouts so that they look more real. Jim, I just wanted to comment that I, I took a look at some of the stuff that you've got out there and it's pretty impressive. And not oh, you've just, seen it? Oh, okay. Yeah, not, not just the, the product you have, but the technology behind it. A 3D printer? I mean, that's... that's I, don't, I don't own a 3D printer. I use Shapeways, uh, but um, yeah, or Shapeways or or people that I know that have 3D printers, but um, I... Uh, really neat stuff. I, I just, I mean, because to be able to produce, because you, one of the things you're looking at when you're trying to produce things for the model railroad market is that you're, it doesn't make any sense to try to invest, you know, $10,000 in tooling to make a mold that can produce hundreds of thousands of parts when you're only going to make 100 or something. And right. So, whereas with the 3D printing, it's it's... It's terrific because you can offer multiple versions and not worry about tooling costs. Then also slide it up and down, and but now they're able to do so many other things with different types of material. Uh, I mean, I, I saw one where they could actually do a, like a rubber overmold if you were trying to make, like, say, a prototype handle or something. Um, and so, and do it with one print. You know, I just like, oh my gosh, that's just pretty crazy. So they're able to do some pretty impressive stuff, and I, I, I mean, they're they're already offering 3D printers that you can, you know, buy for your like a like a, as you would have like a desktop printer. Of course, they're yeah, resolution bad, but I mean, no, actually, um, I, I, one friend of mine did a um, O-scale boxcar end, and it's a Berwick boxcar end, and it, so it's a continuous sine wave. He sent me. He printed it for me because he was trying out his printer. Printed it for me. Sent it to me, and I showed it to I forget what his first name is. Fernaro from Fernaro and Camerlengo, and he was saying that's the best. I mean, still not perfect, but still it was the best 3D printed item he'd ever seen, uh, and it was from a desktop machine. Yeah, I think it goes down to either 0.1 
uh, Jimmy Simmons Monster Model Works has got one. Mm. And I've been working with him on a couple of things, and his goes down to like 0.1 millimeters per <laughs> layer. Oh, wow. So Simmons bought a 3D yeah. printer? Mm-hmm. Really, <laughs> can't help but draw comments. So that's pretty right. neat. Now, so you, you've seen the pictures of me putting on the uh, the wires and stuff. You saw all that. I haven't seen with the wires. I just saw it on the Shapeway site the, the different types of um, oh files that okay. you that you offer. And, okay. Uh, like wow, look at this level of detail. It's just very very right. impressive. Well, so the, so the actual track. Do you uh, take? I don't know, like the fast tracks type jig and, and make the basic shape of the turnouts and then put super detailing around it or a different process? Proto 48 is a different process. What I did was I took a, a, a PDF I've got of a Pennsylvania Railroad diagram of mm-hmm. a number 10 turnout. Mm-hmm. I drew that in SolidWorks, uh, printed it out, laid the ties on that. Uh, so they're in the exact prototype locations. Right. And then you lay the, you lay the straight stock rail and then, uh, the drawing shows you which tie the frog is to be located on. And so you locate the frog, you, you know, and then you start adding the details where they belong as you go. Uh, let me send a picture of the level of the Okay. Well, yeah, and I want to talk to you about the Facebook page. I, I find that very, very frustrating. It's because uh, when I log in, it's logging me in as administrator. So it's it's difficult to go in there and just see sometimes what other people are seeing, and then to easily upload video. You know, just I sure can't do it on the iPad. I've got to come into the laptop and do it. Because I had uploaded some uh, video. I can do it off my iPhone without a problem, but I do find it aggravating that you're signed in as a administrator all the time. Yeah. And when I try, when I'm signed in on my own account and I try and just search for, a, you know, Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast, then it comes back, cannot find. And I'm going, why is that? It's there. You know, it comes up every time. Going back to Kleiser again, he shows a picture where he has taken a two-conductor cord with a mini plug on it. On the non-plug-in, he's just stripped and tinned the wires. That allows him to clip or solder that to the speaker output on a decoder. Then he plugs that into his computer, and he can run it through a piece of software that shows him the frequencies. So he's going, well, duck dogger, you ought to do this, 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 and this is how you can analyze the, the files, because that way you don't have to worry about coloration from your speaker or the body. You're basically tapping into the, the output going to the speaker. Before yes, so I'm just getting the file out of the, the decoder. So I'm going, okay, but I do not have, this latest laptop has no input for mini plugs or anything outside of one speaker input, but it has no facility on that, as far as I know, to accept a, an incoming signal. Everything else is on 3.0 USB. How would I take a USB cable, cut it up, and 
replicate that so I could attach to the decoder. Any ideas? No. Are you, is it possible? I mean, does your laptop have a mic input? Has a microphone what? input. No, no. I've already, I've only got one mini plug on there and it's, as far as I know, is for speakers. You know, it's output, not input. Well, hold on. Wait a minute. Let me get a, let me get a light and it's on the dark side of the room. Oh, you know what? It's either or. It's got the international symbol of a handheld mic slash headphones. So I could do that. I've never, I've only ever noticed the headphone sign. Okay, never mind. <laughs> Point is moot. Oh, my, uh, my laptop, it's black. And I'm in a dark room. So, you know, a lot of times, like when I'm listening to uh, Train Masters TV, I don't normally listen to it with headphones. So I unplug everything. And then when people call me on Skype, I'm trying to, mine has got four uh, plugs on the side. Uh, you know, three different ones for the headphones and one for the microphone. And, you know, so people are like, hello, 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 hello. Can you hear me, Jim? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, well, then I'll make that work because I downloaded one of those, uh, a dot .move MOV file that I'd posted up to uh, MRH and then also on YouTube. And I brought it into SoundForge, which is, you know, Sony's... Uh, massaging program for audio. It's a part of their HD production suite. And I could go in there and manipulate that file with, because they've got like a nine or ten band graphic equalizer as part of Sound SoundForge, but no way to, you know, wasn't pure sound. I was actually just whatever the iPhone had picked up. So, oh, this is exciting because I can look at the file and adjust within soundtracks what I experiment with through SoundForge. Ah, oh, Mr. Chris, you guys are just on top of your game. I took an extra minute to make sure the dogs were not uh, going to be yelping in the background for water, and I thought, oh, look at this. I'll just about be on time. I mean, I figured I would have had a couple of calls on my cell phone. I'm trying to make, like, <laughs> I'm trying to make a protein shake right at the end of the, uh, you know, at the last bit of time there. I'm like, uh, Paul, like clockwork, calls two minutes early. <laughs> <laughs> Almost, huh? Almost. Now, before we get going on this, Jim, was it your understanding that on the uh, Arctic Cool that Chris was going to be involved in a setup for the Fremo meet? Yes. Okay. Mine too, Chris. That's why we didn't call you. If you would have read the phone, the entire message, it said, please oh. call my phone. Oh, sorry. Well, I saw the call your phone, but I thought, he can't take part in this if he's you know, there amongst all the noise and stuff. I was concerned about the uh, ambient noise and stuff of the station there because you were on the museum part, right? Uh, it it really part? matters not because I could always go into the museum office area and shut oh. the door. Okay, this time next year, Jim will know. Right. Yeah. Sorry. 
<laughs> it's okay. Or I could even go into the cab of my truck. Oh yeah, you've done shut that. Shut the door. <laughs> you've done that. Yes. Yeah. Which is, all right. So let's just do an introduction and let's start off talking about that. No. And uh, we mean no. <laughs> it took you long enough. <laughs> oh well, you know. But you know, if you uh, just, of all if, the discussions, you picked the one that I am most interested in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, hey, last month, since this is June, Chris was uh, at the what? What's the right term? The Southern California Free Moment Meet. Well, it was actually what we would consider the uh, the Fremo West Convention, and. Um, it got that monomer because it was really geared to Fremo participants. Um, it, it, it's less of a, a public show and more uh, a show for people contributing Fremo modules to a setup. Okay. So it's more of a meet than it can, than say, a show. Yes. And Phoenix, the uh, Phoenix group was there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because one of the guys came by the store. Uh, he and his son were going over, and he said, "Well, I'll tell you what, I'll be sure and say hello to Chris for you." <laughs> and, and it just my my face just went blank. And then I went, ah, oh, he listened to the podcast. So anyway, yeah, he's a Fremo guy. He and his son are in the store a lot. And uh, interesting side sidebar about the about his son. I he was looking at the railroad one day and I was talking about this, talking about equipment. And I said, well, are you in need of any diesels? And he goes, well, you can never have too much. You know, it's at least like eight or nine. And I go, well, look, here's a uh, ready-to-run CSX SC40-2. It's got extra detail on it. It's got maybe 30 minutes of run time. Would you like it? And he just looks up at his dad and looks over at me and goes, no, that really doesn't fit the plan I have for my model railroad. Awesome. <laughs> I was just speechless. I, <laughs> his dad started started chuckling behind, and he goes, no, I know what I want. And, and as much as I appreciate the offer, he said, that just wouldn't fit in. And I went, that I appreciate your candor. I said, you're years ahead of we adults. We would have jumped. Oh, it's another diesel. Okay, so, Chris. Back on track here. Well, I got to first mention something. Uh, Paul, he, his son managed to score a GP60M at the convention. Someone just gave him a Santa Fe GP60M in a war bonnet. Really? And was absolutely thrilled about that because uh, at the show there were there was a I think a pair of uh, Warbonnet GP60Ms kind of roaming around doing switching uh, right outside the window uh, of the of the station. Oh, you mean in real? In real life. Oh, wow. Okay. So. So he scored a GP60M. Yeah, a Model 1, and he was heavily influenced by the one switching outside. So <laughs> that was pretty cool. See, that's just wrong. That's just wrong on so many levels. Because that's way too, because that means the, the the engineer is way too comfortable while he's doing the switching while the poor sap of the conductor is outside 
sweating his butt off. And the, the engineer is like way too comfortable in a comfort cab. That's just not right. So many levels. Now, if I was an engineer, I would think otherwise. <laughs> Maybe, hey, that's great. Well, that's why he gets the seat. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Well, cool. So about how many uh, groups were there? California, there was about three groups from around California, northern, southern, and central, and then there was also the group from Arizona. There was a collective of about 20 people, and of that, of those 20 people, we had about 30 modules contributed to do this setup. And the scope of setups, we've been bigger in this area before, but the new sandwich shop needed a little bit more room. On a, you, you, you remember the, the depot inside that waiting room. It, it's sort of like on the, the, the west side of the depot is that, is the former ticket office. And that's where the, the sandwich shop op, occupies. And that's where they have more tables and things where they, they need to have a little bit more room. So we kind of brought it down a little bit, but it, it was still a huge setup. <laughs> We've been kind of like in the museum area or doing the, the, the smaller little venues and stuff. So we got to really stretch out and pretty much use everything in the kitchen sink of all the new modules and all the stuff that um, has been kind of in development for a long time. Okay, so everybody's, each group's modules, it was one big railroad? Yes, it was a... Wow. We, we got to actually do a big yard in the sort of central area of the track plan and then on each end have a balloon. And this provided like continuous operation for people that love to do passenger trains, you know, and, and of course for freight trains too. But one of the biggest benefits of this layout was we were able to get uh, about 43 car trains we're talking 55-foot cars or so, um, not including the power. With, with the power on there, it was probably about 45, 45 car trains or so. You don't realize how much better a train looks at 45 cars <laughs> on a big layout, you know, Um so a few guys were pulling out a 60 car. One guy was running a 60 car coal train around, a unit coal train. Neat. And it just looked great, you know? Neat. Oh, I love long, uh, running long trains. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So this went on for what? All day Saturday and part of Sunday? It went on all day Friday, Saturday, and part of Sunday. Oh, man. That would have been so neat. Yeah, I was hoping you'd come out and, uh, you know, with the museum going on, there's there's always something, you know, outside yeah. the museum going on and us. Uh, what I'm really hoping to do for the future, uh, for future events like this is to kind of also add in some clinics for the Fremo guys participating into the um, into the layout, specifically targeting Fremo, um, like better bench work, maybe something going around uh, wiring, signal design, you know, stuff like that, that would really be 
of interest to uh, guys building modules. Ah, the other thing is um, the clinic I just gave. I was just at the Collinsville, um, Connecticut, uh, New England RPM. Yeah. And I gave a clinic on track as a model too. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I fly you out for that, Jim. What? <laughs> you want to come out? Sure, I'll come out. If, if, you're, right. if, you're, if you're flying me out, I'll come out. Now we're back to the bus, Jim. It's, it's a bus ride. I don't have time I'll, for I'll that. I'll get a Kickstarter going right now to get Jim Lincoln to the West Coast. <laughs> there you go. Um, but, uh, no, yeah, track is a model, too, and uh, basically talking about, yeah, I, 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 you know, I try to make it kind of humorous. Thing. I admit that I'm a zealot about track and detail, but, you know, the people who say, well, you can't see the detail, you can't see it, though. So, you know, you don't notice it, so why put it in, right? Right. I said, and well, I'll get there. And I said, okay, so uh, so everybody, you know, it's dark in the room. I said, okay, everybody who who applies the three foot rule, raise your hand. Come on, raise your hand. I'm not going to do anything to you. Raise your hand. Admit to it. Come on. <laughs> Gobbledygook. Says, because let's look at these photographs. How far away am I from this point in the photograph? And I point to somewhere in the photograph. So that's about 500 feet away, which is about. Ooh, five feet in HO scale, and guess what? You can see that you can see the uh, the joint bars. <laughs> so the reason you can't see the detail is because you don't put it in, <laughs> and you're just trying to make yourself feel better. Right. To say I don't want to do it, so you just don't see it. Well, you don't see it because you don't put it in. Don't try to tell me that. You can't see it because you can. And yeah. if your eyes aren't good enough to see it, the camera can see it. So, Well, the other thing, too, the three-foot rule applies to a lot of, um, a lot of say, layouts and maybe even modular groups that are about the 42, 40-inch height. Yep. You know, the average, yep. the average right. person viewing distance, you know, standing like a foot, foot or two back looking down at a layout mm-hmm. like that. Um, Fremo is like 50 inches. Right. So it's more like a two foot viewing area. So right. all this detail really stands out. And I think that would be a great, great, uh, clinic to have at, at one of these events. Yeah. I mean, the point, the point being is what I tried to, you know, okay, you look at my switch because I've got that number 10 burnout and it's over the top. And I'll admit that it's over the top. And I said, you know, some people will look at it and say, well, I don't do, I don't want to do an entire layout. With that much detail, I said, "Fine, pick a signature scene, pick something." And what I did is I showed a photograph of the Walpole Yard, which is—I mean, it's a yard, but there's like two and a half tracks. Uh, but one of the tracks you can see where the old turnout was, and what they did, what the railroad did, is they kept the curved side of the turnout, which is odd. Um, but the head blocks are there, that, and you can see where the turn, where the, the, you know, the, the track curves around where the turnout was and the um the the rail braces are still there so the rail braces are the the things they put right where the points are they're still there even though there's no turnout there you can't even tell there was a turnout there except for the head blocks and the uh 
and the rail braces, but there's little details like that. I said, put that, you know, make that a signature scene because people will come in and they'll say, wow, an abandoned track. Look where they used to have that turnout there. But you, they, they pulled it out. People will look at that. So now they're drawn to that scene. Put the detail there. You know, and then, I have a, I have a module. It's three feet, mo it's a three foot module. Yeah. I put on the joint bars. Yeah. And I got to send a picture of, of this module to you. I went in and I also added yellow dots to where mm -hmm. the tie replacements were going to be on the side of the rail. Yep. And then I also added where the, the frog used to be, mm -hmm. where the points used to be, mm -hmm. and then kind of scraped out where they pulled out some of the ties on the ballast. Yep. And then have part of the uh, abandoned spur. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people just commented on it. It's just, it's a three foot module. It took me like, an hour to do all the detail on that. Right. It's you know, really it, it's not like you're doing a, a, a 30 foot by 50 foot railroad, a three foot module. <laughs> you know, it's you can afford to spend right. the extra hour on it, you know? Right. right. See, uh, yeah, at an RPM, you're not necessarily talking to a modular crowd. So, um, that's not how I geared it. But the, you know, my, my intention was to say, just, you know, pick a small piece of your railroad and, and detail it up, or I should add that in. It says if you if you're just doing a module, add in the detail. You can actually see it. It's like a, the guy had a uh, across from where I was. He had a really nice, I think it was a scratch built structure. And I said, you know, and he said, oh, you see, I put the joint bars in, but only on this side because you can't see the other side. It's too close to the building. That's fine. I said, you know, the only problem is because I went over and I said, you know, you can't see the joints. You got joint bars, and it's obvious that all you did was stick them onto the side of the rail. And so, so all you could, all you could do is, is what I my suggestion is: just take a little bit of black paint and just put a line on top of them, <coughs> right on top of where the joint bars are. And uh, the other thing, what I actually did is I took an exacto knife, an exacto knife, not a razor saw, because the knife. Is gonna put a nut, will put a little bit of a cut in the top of the rail. You don't want huge, yeah. um, because then it's out of scale. <laughs> uh, you know, so you want to just put a little cut in, in the top of the rail with an X-Acto knife, and you go through them anyway, so it doesn't matter if you dull it a little bit. Um, and then get the paint into that slot, and then scrape it off the top of the rail, and then it'll, it'll highlight, uh, it'll shade rather, not won't highlight technically. You know what I mean though? But it, it'll it'll fill in that little hole, so now it looks like a gap, as opposed to just you know you you nicked it with the top, with an exacto knife, and it, and it makes a big difference. That you know you look down the rail and you can see the joints now, and it makes it makes a nice difference. And it didn't, I mean it took me all of like you say, Chris, it's like a minute. Yeah took me longer to turn around to find the right color of paint you know <laughs> yeah it it isn't as bad as people think people kind of freak out like oh my god joint bars might as well put in nails in every board but people do that sort of detail too um yeah. i think one of the most effective things that i did to a, a siding track and i've been wanting to take pictures of it it's just been really difficult because I got to do uh, do several different exposures of it to kind of get the focus right, mm -hmm. you know. But I crowned the rail when I put on a, oh, cool. a couple joint bars. 
it, it's so subtle. I mean, I, I just use hand pressure with a, a screwdriver just to kind of give it a little bit of a dip. Right, oh, at, the right at the okay, so right at the joint, you you all right? So where the where the wheels hitting? Yeah, yeah, all right. It, it's it's pretty invisible when you look at it side on, mm-hmm. but when you stare down the track, you can see it. Right. But also, as further evidence is when you have high cube cars mm-hmm. rolling yeah, over that, you could start seeing them kind of slowly sway from side to side. Ah, cool. And people look at that and are like, what's, go- what's going on? And I'm going like, those are those are crown joints. And they, they looked at them and looked down the track. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you yeah. know? Real but, subtle stuff like that. And, you know, when they're pulling a long train and you see cars kind of swaying back and forth through there, it looks really cool. Right. Well, as long as that, that, It was such a subtle thing, and uh, it didn't take more than, like, five minutes to do that you know right and that's kind of what my point is it's just like you know be observant see the different things pick a scene pick a small area and do it it's and the the other point that i made the difference between like really detailing track if you go crazy and detail a bunch of track as to the same level that people do freight cars and locomotives Okay, you know, you do a locomotive and you put on all the pipes and all the the hoses and all that other gobbledygook. Um, uh, maybe you can use it on your layout if you put it on and don't touch it. If all you do ever do is run the locomotive around and never touch it again, you can use that highly detailed locomotive. God help you if anybody else runs it because they're probably going to be ham-handed and they're going to break stuff. Particularly on a freight car, not so much a locomotive maybe, but on a freight car. Um, all these really fine grab irons and stuff. Whereas you detail the snot out of track, it's very robust. Yes. It's way more robust than, than detailing like a freight car. You can stick it on your layout. No one's ever going to touch it again. Right. <laughs> and even if they do, it ain't. it's not going anywhere. I mean, unless yeah. you've got signs, and, you know, the little itty-bitty signs that are to scale and stuff like that, then yes. But joint bars and the the pings in the rail or, you know, rail braces and all that other stuff, they're not going anywhere once you put them in. Who makes the uh, that detail part in HO? Uh, joint bars? Um, Details West makes some. They're a little pretty. Proto 87 stores is probably the place to go. But if you want – now, the other detail – Although it's technically not on track, it is. It's related to track, but it's not. If you go anywhere that's related to a railroad yard, you're going to see piles of tie plates. There's tie plates everywhere. Or oh, yeah. even on the even on the right of way, if they're going to be going in and replacing ties, if they're going to do a tie replacement program, at least on CSX, what they would do is they would lay two tie plates on every tie for like a quarter or a half a mile. So as you'd go along, you'd see these these two tie plates on the middle, in the middle of the gauge. Oh, yeah. And, uh, or tie plates on the right of way. And Jimmy Simmons, uh, MonsterModelWorks.com, he makes HO scale tie plates that are reasonably priced. Other people make them. They're not as reasonably priced as Jimmy's are. So so you you would go for the Monster Model Works uh, tie plates if, for doing Absolutely. detail like that? For, for, yeah, because you, unlike... Um, their laser board, they take paint very well. They also take um, 
uh, white glue well, as opposed to, say, the Proto 87 uh, etched metal ones. The etched metal ones are nice, uh, but they're more money, and you can't glue them down with white glue like any other scenic item. Whereas a pile of ties, you you know, you you paint it like you would any other wood item, and then just glue them down with um, white glue, you know, dilute white glue. And Titus is saying hello. <laughs> we'll give him credit again on the uh, the data, the file data. There you go. <laughs> Here we go. The thing about that you mentioned about detailing and handling, about two thirds of the way through a sixty car project uh, for one of my buddies, and this is all equipment that is oh. 1920 to 19, uh, mid-1940s, and all of them are kits, so there's like 60-some cars I'm working my way through. Some are truss rod, you know, with turnbuckles, queen post, uh, truss rods, uh, a lot of uh, sheathed uh, reefers, you know, ice bunker reefers and so forth, and he just wanted the the roofs and the sides and the ends weathered. But if I do weathering for someone, I always weather the underframe. And you just can't, with all that detail on there, you just can't take a big, poofy makeup brush and do it. You just can't because it'll just hit the high points. And if you do it too aggressively, you're breaking off sill steps you're breaking off, you know, not so much handholds, but brake gear. So it's been a nightmare because I've had to do a lot of repair to the bottom of these. And uh, and now I'm down to micro brushes because you just can't lay the, the, the pigment on top. You've got to kind of burnish it in or it's just going to blow away as soon as the uh, airbrush and the dull coat hit it. So I understand what you mean by if you, you know, highly detailed locomotive that gets handled, you know, you're going to have some frustration versus the uh, the track. That or, right. you know, my suggestion to Jack is, hey, let me weather the cars before you put all this underframe de- detail on there. That or maybe I just airbrush it with uh, dusty uh Colored paint the next time, but yeah, that's probably looks good when it's done. But I tell you what, I'll drive you crazy, huh? Oh drive yeah, crazy. yeah, yeah. Then when I knocked one of the queen posts off, and he uh, does his tie rods with monofilament line. Yep. And which is good news is it's that part's resilient. So I just pulled it up with a pair of spring tweezers, reglued the. Uh, you know, the queen post there, and then slipped it back over once the glue had set. But I went, oh, man. Because the first batch was like 10 cars with this. And, of course, you know, there's two sets of queen posts on. Uh, the needle beams. You know, the A end and the B end. and then, But, I mean, it looked good when it was done, but I went, Okay, got to figure this into the labor rate the next time. <laughs> yeah. Golly. Yeah. Yeah. See, as we speak, I'm actually working on a um, a Pennsylvania XC boxcar. 
uh, in HO scale um, from Amesville Shops, so Craig Biscayer's company. And uh, Craig Biscayer had a clinic on, you know, building a design, building and designing a multimedia kit. So this is a, it's laser cut. The vast majority of it's laser cut, but it's also, you've got plastic part and, and other things in it. Uh, so it's a, what he termed a multimedia kit. And um, I've been to his railroad several times. I'm going to be going down to his house uh, in June. So uh, I said, hey, well, that looks pretty cool. If you give me one, I'll build it for you. Well, I don't have any use for it, but it'd be interesting to build the kit. And so that's what I'm doing right now. So I know all about itty-bitty green posts that are, you know, microscopic. And I'm going to have to be putting in my monofil- monofilament line for the uh, truss rods. Okay. Yeah, there was one of the uh, a thread on uh, one of the MRH forums and discussing how to put in, you know, what's the best way to put in queen post tie rods and turnbuckles on there. So that's the only reason I know because I've never. That's not my era, so I've never built a car with that. The only reason I knew was because of this thread. Now, uh, what what uh, what era is this guy modeling? Well, Jack's a Canadian guy, so I've operated on his railroad before. So he has a complete roster of equipment for contemporary, you know, dash twos. Then he goes back. He has steam appropriate for the nineteen uh, forties, and then he even has a uh, set of equipment that is the much smaller diminutive steam, uh, smaller cars, freight cars that are a lot of arch bar trucks and stuff. So, and he's, so he's got his boxes labeled 1920, 1940 contemporary. So everything is segregated. And so the, when we do an op session and he sends out the email, he'll say, we're doing 1940, we're doing contemporary, or we're doing 1920s with a heavy emphasis on steam and passenger. So, I've never done any of his contemporary equipment. I've uh, just done all of this, uh, like I said, 30s and 40s items. Uh, not done any of his locomotives yet. I keep going, hey. Why don't you let me uh, take on this? Because uh, he has a lot of really nice brass uh, steam that's been uh, painted. Well, that and may be watered. That may and, that may uh, tell you something about how much he trusts you. Well, could be. <laughs> could be. <laughs> yeah. Here, you can have these cars. Don't you dare touch my uh, locomotive. Touch my brass. Yeah, yeah. He's got a, a two eight eight zero and a two eight eight two that are in uh done for Great Northern or was that Northern Pacific? Whatever. One of the two. That are just just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And they've been remoted. They they have tsunamis in them. And uh oh they are so sweet. <laughs> they are really sweet. Well, uh, I, you're talking about uh yep. the GP sixty M's a while ago, Chris? Yeah. I had uh I finished them on last Monday. My wife was in town, but she 
she drove in, so she went back on Memorial Day. And uh, so I finished wiring up uh, two of my GP60Bs and uh, one of my GP60Ms. They're war bonnet. So I had tsunamis in them and uh, DSM-8s out of Railmasters. And, you know, I put surface mount LEDs in them and took them into the store on uh, Tuesday and hooked them up to 25 feet of uh, contemporary, you know, spine cars and just one or two uh deep wells in there and pulled them around they pulled well i've uh i've got a video i'll send you the link jim because as we talked the last time and you posted the video on uh, tehachapi well that was chris, the, chris chris posted that okay but you were talking about how the uh the locomotives are in notch eight and uh, 645 is just growling. I mean, there's nothing right. left for it to do as it slugs its way up. So two weeks ago, when I put a uh, Tsunami and uh, DSMA in a friend's SD45, they kept playing around with the graphic equalizer, you know, building on what the suggestions that Professor Kleiser had posted on that thread and kept tweaking it subtly till because I had a locomotive on uh, test rollers and had it in manual notching. Mm-hmm. And so I could run it and, you know, hear what it was doing. And got up to where I was able to get a a notch eight growl, a good representation of a notch eight growl. And so yesterday I had it in a uh, SD40-2. Uh, on the point of a more appropriate, like 1980s uh, intermodal, a lot of uh, F89 flats, Gunderson yep. twin stack. And I went, it was going up 2% grade, and I notched it forward, and I went, boy, that's, that 45 is really, really singing. So I took uh, some iPhone uh, video of it. I'll get it uploaded and post a link to you. But cool. you can you can hear that you know, that, that moan. Right. And I'm like, you know, loss of physics and consideration, this is a good representation. Yeah, the the uh, the tsunami does a pretty good job. Uh, one thing I will say about ESU is yeah. they um they were at the, the meet. Um I forget what his name is, but he was at the meet. Matt the, uh Matt Herman? Yes. I believe I believe that is who it is. They are C thirty they've got a FDL sixteen for the C thirty seven A. Yeah. They nailed it. They nailed the C thirty. That the the chugging. Yes. Particularly when it's like loping along and like a fourth knot, so it's like cluck, 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 cluck. Yeah. Just just it you know, just lopes along like that. Nailed Very it. Very distinctive. Well, yeah, because he what he did is he's playing the the diesel and then he was able to call up uh, a video of Conrail C thirty seven. And so he's playing it on his laptop the actual video, and then playing the, the locomotive on the test track. They nailed it. At least that one. I may have my complaints about their their uh, 645, but their FDL-16, spot on. Wow. Yeah. Not many not many uh, decoder manufacturers have gotten the the GEs right, you know? Yeah, the, the Tsunami Jivo one is good. And what does a Jivo sound like? I put a decoder in an Intermountain Jivo for a friend. And I fired it up, and I did just some basic tweaking with the graphic equalizer. 
to uh, accommodate the uh, DSM-8. And I thought, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing here because I do not know what these locomotives sound like. Mm-hmm. Hey, Paul, just bring that locomotive with your test track over to our next setup at the Amarindino <laughs> okay. Depot. You'll be hearing ES-44s go by all day, and you just watch and listen, and you kind of tweak it to make sure that sounds like what you hear outside. I guess, well, probably on YouTube there's some sound of Jeevos out there. But oh, absolutely. They Well, now, Confalone, in one of the other threads under the DCC subject on MRH, was, you know, very strongly making the point about building your sound files out of underload locomotives. He made the point of how good, though, the Tsunami uh, non-turbo 645 sounds. And so I had picked up two UP, still in the cellophane, an A and a B unit in UP. And I'm looking at them, and I'm going, oh, crap, they don't have the headlight in the door. A and a B, what? What are you talking about? Oh, I'm sorry. E8, Proto 2s. Okay. 2000, Union Pacific. Uh Uh-huh. Both A and B powered. Okay. And at first I was a little disappointed because I went, oh, they're UP, but they don't have the uh, headlight in the the door. Are you talking like the MU door for the nose? Yeah, of the E units. Because every picture I'd ever seen of of an E unit... uh, in passenger service, had uh, you know, a headlight there and a gyro light up top. And then I saw, well, I was looking at my own video about the uh, rebuilt UPEs they used on the heritage trains. And they took the doors and took the light out of the doors. So the headlight's up top, and there's no separate gyro light now because of ditch lights. Okay, all right, so I'll keep them because I'll just, I've got a bunch of the heritage cars. And then I thought, well, these things have been remotored with uh, GP38 uh, versions of the, you know, 645 non-turbo. So I thought, I'll take Mr. Confalone's uh, recommendation and put that uh, sound card in here. They put 645s in the E8s? They took, yes, when they rebuilt them in the 90s, uh-huh. they took out the 567s. They, they pretty much gutted the locomotive from the cab wall back. Mm-hmm. And put in a uh, non-turbo uh, 645. Just one or two. V16, yes, just one. Oh, okay. 2,000 horsepower. Okay, so it's the same thing. It's just one yeah, engine. Yeah, but it's got a different different sound. Oh, absolutely. I mean, 567 is very unique when it chugs along. Well, particularly when there's two, I mean, there's a difference between two of them and one. And right. So, but yeah. you know on uh, decoder cards, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's 828-118 is the uh, soundtracks. Okay. Anyway, it's one they say that uh, is for the E-units with the uh, twin prime movers. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's a, that's one of the more expensive sound cards. And it's in the, uh, you know, it's all hardwired, it's not a board. And so I've put seven or eight of those in, either for friends or, you know, three or four of them for my own. And the only time you hear the twin motor is at startup. Okay. You The first prime mover starts up, and then a second or two later, the second unit starts up. Beyond that, there is the sound of, you know, one prime mover. Mm-hmm. 
And it's not like, uh, you know, MRH or <laughs> MRH, MRC makes a version with their calling it stereo sound. And they have two speakers for the, the twin prime movers. Mm -hmm. I've never heard it, but I've just seen the description. And I go, you know, if, if you're not going to do it in stereo, or if you're not going to have a second set of speakers that at least wire them out of phase so that you get a distinction between right. the sound of one prime mover and another, like, yeah. uh, who is it? BL, BLI did that on their uh, Baldwin centipedes. And you get the, the out of phase, your ear is picking up two different speaker sounds. So I thought, okay, then why am I buying the... You know, the expensive E version when I could buy the Bowser version of right. 567 and, you know, cut the facade. And it's it's a board, so right. it's not a lot of hardware. Yeah. yeah. The other neat thing, just I just thought of this, is they he had a, um, probably it was an Atlas S2. It was an S2 and S4, but it was a 539. Yeah. And um, he had it running, and, you know, he even had Confalone drooling over it. You know, we're over there listening to it, and he had it. As if you were uh, switching cars. So he was able to go like from like notch one to two and like boom, right up to eight. Boom, right up to eight and then nothing. And then stop. So, yeah, yeah he had the, he was controlling it so that like, you know, you, you slam the, the throttle forward. You take, you take off, you start going and then you hit the brakes and, and just drop the, the throttle to nothing. Like you would, like you would while you're uh, drilling or switching, and nailed it. And yeah, it was very, very cool. They have a lot of neat features. The tricky thing uh, was that if you basically standardize on tsunamis, getting tsunamis and ESUs to talk nicely to each other can be tricky. You know, if you if you're gonna have like three units with different decoders in the same consist, they can get yes. it can get tricky. To get them to yeah, behave, just behave speed nicely. match and so forth. Yeah, to get them behave nicely. Well, because their motor control is different. Yes. They're able to do different things. So uh, to get them to play nicely, Confalone, Mike Confalone has been able to do it in a couple of instances. But, you know, he said it's not even remotely easy. So you use speed tables? Is that... I, I, I have no idea. I have no idea. Zero. Zero idea at all. So Well, well that's kind that. of unfortunate, Jim, because, it, you know, I think... Locomotives would sound better with uh, different make uh, sound decoders. Simply by, you know, they're different recordings. True. Yes, it's very true. Except the one thing I will say is that the 645 that's in the Tsunami is better, for the reasons I've already stated, than the ESU one. So whereas I'd have to listen to the, five, the 645 non-turbo to... Make a decision, but that would be that would be very true because you'd have two different locomotives that sounded differently. Didn't he? I mean, Mike Confalone didn't say it's impossible. It's just hard to get him to talk nicely with each other. Right. Unfortunately, you know, we're talking about like all the different weird functions, not just so much speed matching, but you function know, mapping have, too. Then I think function, yeah, function mapping. So you got one. You know, you have if you have a two locomotive consist one is esu one is tsunami you know one's going to have headlights to you know you need to have the headlights work on both ends right when you're going you know you don't want weird things occurring with the headlights of the bell or you know all the horn whatever 
You yes. So that's the tricky bit, apparently. So far, I've segregated my concepts. If there are protos, then the protos are running together. I've not even mixed the ready-to-run Atherin with the Genesis. Because, and fortunately, that's the way I planned out the purchases and planned out the trains uh, because I've noticed a difference. I mean, the, the Genesis, with its different drivetrain, just react totally different than those five uh, ready-to-runs I've got at the store. And they're all with tsunamis, you know, and they're all AT boards. So, but it sounds good. Now, I'm looking at an MTH uh, 78 here. One of my friends got a good deal on, on eBay, and he brings it to me. He says, well, will you put a decoder in it? And I said, well, let me take a look at it. I said, I've never done an MTA. And beautiful locomotive. Absolutely. I mean, the handrails are wire. <laughs> the stanchions appear to be stamped metal. So I said, well, where's the instructions on how to get this apart? Well, I don't have any. And I went, oh, that's right. You bought it on eBay. And did it come in a box? And he goes, no. I said, okay, that explains why the uh, couple of the uh, front ladder, you know, handles are missing. So I had to go Google because I went to a couple of the forums and said, hey, who's got any experience at taking these things apart? And didn't have a lot of success. Uh, sent emails to a couple of the stores where I buy decoders, speakers and stuff. And they're going, hey, we've never done one. People are either buying them with sound or they're buying them without. So finally found... Uh, a merchant, he's actually an eBay merchant, but he had PDF'd the, uh, the owner's manual. And so on page eight, it said how to remove the body. Printed it out, took it in there, and you have to disassemble the trucks. Oh, nice. So you got to pry the side frames off, but you have to be careful because that's where the, the leads are mm -hmm. from the pickup. Then you got to take all the axles out and when you look through the bare skeleton of the truck you see two little friction pins latches whatever you want to call them not too much different from the clear plastic ones you see when you turn a real old uh, river rossi car over and wow. you know what i'm talking about where you pull them together and try oh. and slide it out so it took about 20 minutes because I would be very, very careful to get the handrails that attach to the cab loose. Because when you pull the cab off, you don't, and I'm talking about the body shelf, you don't have to, it's like a cotto. You don't have to take off the running board where all the other handrails are. They can stay there. But it would help to have four hands to do this. So finally, I got the rear two uh, levers wedged in place with the number 10 blade and then able to pick it up and just gently wiggle it it released and looking there so it's it's like a modern intermountain in that all of the lights are in little injection molded sub assemblies it's not like an atherin where the lights are just there and you can pull them out these things are in these self-contained little housing and it's good engineering i don't have a problem with that but Nothing's in NMRA colors, but then again, neither is Atherin. So there's just wires everywhere. And it goes into these six-pin housings. And I'm going, okay, here's space for a board because their light board looks like a, an AT board or a GN board. 
And I, so I just went back to the to the guy that owns it. I said, I'm not getting a good feel about this. I said, we can try a GN board, but we're going to take all these harnesses apart, trace them, you know, trace them before we take them out of the harnesses, and so we can solder them on. I said, do you really want to do this? I said, there's probably two hours of, of work here to do it and do it right, because I've never done before. I said, my suggestion is, if you want sound out of a, out of a, you know, MTH, buy their uh, DCC with Proto 3 sound and just put up with the idiosyncrasies of, you know, what you can adjust and what you can't. I said, because this is going to be a lot of work. So he's thinking on it. We'll see. But, oh, it is such a beautiful locomotive. And I had it running on DC, and it runs very well on DC. But I went, okay, note to self, if I ever want an MTH, buy it with DCC and sound. Don't try and do this yourself. So is MTH DCC truly, or are they still DCS? Or Well, they have their DCS, and they have a – they're calling it DCC. I've never operated – one of their quote-unquote DCC with 3.0 sound, their proprietary sound. I've never, so I don't know, Chris. In reading the manual that came with this uh, that I, you know, downloaded off the web, it indicates that some of the CVs are the same and you can access them. Some of them you can't. They may be there, but you can't access them without having a DCS controller and mm. on one i don't know if it was ulrich uh tony's or one of them they did a review of it and their guy was quite candid in his assessment of the how much you can do programming wise to an mth that you've converted or their quote unquote dcc uh without the dcs i get the impression that you know, you can probably play around with CV234, 29, uh, but you're not going to do any graphic equalizer work. So 153 through 160 apparently are not available. The basic volume changes, if I read this right, is just like low, medium, or loud. So three levels for volume? Yeah, unless you've got, again, DCS in there, maybe you can do more. So take all this worth a grain of salt, people, because I've never owned one. I've just read the book to be able to try and help uh, my friend Ed make an informed choice of what he wanted me to do. But I thought, okay, I would buy one of these locomotives because they're so detailed if it were the right one. But if I wanted sound in DCC, I would just buy it from them. Uh, there's no room in the body anywhere for speakers, but the fuel tank comes with, two speaker pods. They look like they're 28-millimeter speakers, you know, so like an R&D 28 out of Railmasters or something like that, you know, a shallow relief uh, speaker. Mm -hmm. But it is a beautiful locomotive. But, <laughs> you know, it's like a guy tinkering around with the uh, pushrod uh, V8 and a 57 Chevy, and then he's time warps up to 2014, and he looks at the V8 in a new Camaro, you know, he's going to go 
go out of his mind because they are just not the same. Right. But like I say, it runs great, just beautiful, the way they've executed the handrails and stuff. And uh, like I said, the lights and stuff, very well done. I have no problem with the engineering of it. It just doesn't lend itself to aftermarket tinkering. So Right. That's the, the comments that I've heard, say, on the diesel list, which and they're very, very critical of everything. They are not very high on MTA, mainly because of what you spoke about the decoders. Not so much the fidelity of the, the locomotive itself, but getting it. And DCS doesn't really like to play well with DCC decoders. And getting a another, you know, a tsunami in it is problematic. So, they're yeah, not, they're not really high on them. <laughs> I had ordered a set. This is last year. Uh, actually ordered it before that, of their MTH had the AB set of the PAs in Santa Fe. And I had ordered uh, that set with the DCC and the 3.0 sound. And it turns out they were just, had so many orders for them that even my order didn't make it on the second shipment. And I was disappointed because I'd seen the locomotives and I thought the PA was one of the most well-executed HO scale PAs ever. Yeah, I think they were very. The diesel list was, although you know they're not really keen on the mechanism and the decoder and everything. The PA mm -hmm. they were very complimentary of. Oh, beautiful body. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, yeah, if Proto were to ever rerun their PAs, I'd say, hey, take a look at the MTH and replicate that body uh, because the uh, the Protos. And then what, it's probably been at least 10 years since they ran the, the uh, PAs. I mean, that's a closed body. There's no roof openings. There's no uh, air intake uh, openings or anything. Mm -hmm. Whereas the uh, MTH, openings everywhere. Mm. And I look at it as, oh, wow, there's places to get sound out of, you know. Right. I don't have any uh, proto-PAs. I gave them to a friend who was threatening suicide if he didn't find a set and I said here it's not a big deal to me you can here's a a powered ABA set because mm -hmm. even the B unit was powered I said you can have this and because uh, he was a friend did make a difference to me but boy yeah the MTHPAs I must say I lusted after those <laughs> ah have either of you guys had experience with the MTH GP35s no I've been trying to hunt one down to have a look at it in person. I, I've seen photos of it in magazines and stuff, but there's a certain tangibility thing that goes along with a, a locomotive evaluation that I think is pretty important. Uh, I was trying to figure out, you know, what what the handrails were, how they did the handrails, because blurry net pictures, it, it's really hard to tell if they're stamped metal uh, or if they're brass castings or what the heck is going on with those things. Yeah, I have no oh, idea. Well, if it's like on this one here, these are metal. Yeah. It's not it's not brass or anything because they're pre-bent. They're quite rigid. Like, you know, on the uh, ace where it comes up towards the cab and you've got that electrical cabinet box, I guess, on both sides. That handrail is precisely bent to make the transition up and then go along the uh, the upper level of those cabinets and then make the turn back into the cab. Uh, so, I mean, it's great manufacturing. Okay. 
So I would imagine that you said the 35. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine Chris has done the same way, and it's probably just excellent. Yeah, I'm curious to still check it out. And then there's also the the Broadway Limited SW1500. Both the GP35 and SW1500 are in my beloved SP, along with the light packages and all that stuff. So, mm. of, of course, you can imagine my curiosity on these locomotives. Now, of course, we haven't even addressed the question that you had in the first place, and we've been talking for about an hour. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of want to recap a little bit on, on the refrigeration sound. I have a project that I've been working on, and kind of behind the scenes, and wanted to introduce it to the listeners. And I think it's been kind of mentioned in a few of uh, the the forum postings. But what I've been doing, kind of not so secretly, is just sort of make a collection of uh, reefer sound recordings. And my whole game plan is to put a, a custom sound in every one of my refrigerator cars to kind of avoid phase cancellation. In many cases, I think that that sort of works against sound. The other part of the, the equation, too, was kind of add a little bit of um, character to each one of the cars within the unit train. So right. I, I was just curious what, what, what you guys gathered from uh, your conversation. Uh, with uh, Dave? Yeah. Yeah, he did a lot of research in it, into the sounds. Apparently, this was a dream of his. This Our discussion here is going to be on the same podcast with his interview. But just to refresh everybody, Chris couldn't be present for the, uh, for the day. So that's why we're having this review. He got this idea back in the 70s, Chris, probably about the time that Athern came out with the 57-foot reefer back in the mid-70s, said he wanted to have that kind of a sound presence. I mean, he was telling us the difference between, you know, how many times it would cycle on, cycle off, depending upon what the commodity was in the car. So, cycle on and cycle off, but I I have every reason to doubt that they really did much, the engine did much cycling at all. No, the motor on the new ones is, is running. The compressor is, which changes the load requirement on the power source is what I meant. I mean, oh. it's idling, and then the, the temperature, the program calls for more cooling, so it kicks in, and that raises the RPM of the motor. Right. I see. Not like it used to be where the prime mover or the power source would shut down and restart. Apparently, it's not done that way now. The motor's, you know, like on a passenger train. It's always running because of supplying head-end power. Oh, come on. Listen to the interview. He explains it. <laughs> Just listen to it. He explains it. But, yeah, that's what it is. It's, remember, we listened to it at San Bernardino at the uh, proto-meet. Yeah, we were listening to, to the truck refrigerators on the end of a car. Um, yeah. As far as, like, P, PFE refrigerator cars, my understanding, and this is kind of corroborated by uh, – you know, different railroad crews that actually switched and handled these cars too. Okay. The the engine was always running, and I, I've seen yeah, a lot of people goes into that. Or sort of on YouTube take a an Athern sound unit and sort of put it inside their PFE 57 foot refrigerator car that has the auto shut off and stuff, and that's not accurate for the PFE at all. <laughs> Correct. And, and, and that's kind of. 
he had well, that, that. That's what led me to go down the path that I'm going down is taking the different refrigerator car sounds and putting a, a character into each one of them and turning them into a unit train. Just by nature, I know that they're always going to go together, and I do need each one to have like a different pitch or tone or you know recording all together to to sort of chorus or or be in harmony together like what you said about the 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 sound decoders on the 645s Jim right. it's really imperative when you have that many of them together they're they're going to kind of chorus together you know right yeah he addresses that oh uh, he does okay yeah no he did talk about how there's a total there's a difference between the uh basically Detroit diesel on the older ones that's basically always on and the newer ones, which essentially have a carrier unit off of a truck, it's essentially right. the same thing. And a lot of the those cars were retrofitted with that. But the older ones still have that that um, that Detroit diesel in it, and they're basically on or off. Yeah, that's it. it whereas the other ones cycle. Right. Hmm. And he does have two different te- he does have two different recordings available on uh, what he's looking for actually. It is good recordings of particularly of the the older versions because the ones he has right now are ones taken off the internet so other people own them so before he get really gets into it he really needs to get carrier ones are not an issue the other ones he's he's looking to get um, someone who can have access to them and have a good solid clear recording of it to take some recordings for him or get to get with him to, to deal with it. Because what happened was, you know, he's been wanting, as uh, Paul said, he's been wanting to do this since the 70s. And then Atherin came out with their ones with the sound decoder. He thought, this is great. He contacts Atherin and says, hey, can I get this part? No. Hmm. Well, I just want the decoder. He can't have it. We don't sell it separately. All right. So he goes to Soundtracks, and Soundtracks, no, we're not selling it separate. We just we just sell it to, uh, and we have no plans of doing it, zero. Oh. So. It's actually not a decoder specifically. It's some I remember the. It's more like an extension. Shane or one of them used a different term, but it was like a sound generator. Yeah, it's more like it's a. Not a decoder per se. It's more like it's a decoder, but it doesn't have the same features. It doesn't, doesn't have, have an address or function yeah. function ability. It, it just when it has track car, it runs. Basically, that's, yeah. that's what it is. It's a very cheap. It's the cheapest decoder he could come across. Yeah, so one that's just agnostic to any sort of DCC signal, more just give me power. Yep. Just kind of going back, uh, you know, the professor actually recommended using a, a Digitrax sound bug to be the host for the sound files, and I thought that might be actually a pretty good idea. Mm-hmm. Oh, for the reefer? Yeah, for the refrigeration sound. And then it would also give a medium to maybe even do an article and kind of have like a bunch of downloadable sounds that people can just put on a sound bug and put it into the refrigerator car, you know? Mm. Yep. So I, I'm I'm looking into doing a couple different things with it, um, but if he's already going forward with it, that kind of negates me doing anything with it, you know. So, right. Well, you've got his contact information. Just give Dave a, an email. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But, you yeah. know, Jim hammered him uh, pretty good on doing uh, flat uh, wheel spots. Did I? 
Yeah. Okay. I'm just joking. Oh. We did talk about it, though. Yeah, flat spots and... Um... Slack. No, oh, yeah, I didn't get... You want the slack, don't you? No, no, I, well, I didn't get into... That's, <laughs> that's way too hard. That's bang, bang, too... bang, bang. But that's way too hard to do. That, that's yeah, how, that... it would be rather difficult. You kind However, of almost need, like, a computer camera and a smart computer to kind of calculate how many cars are being handled and no, all you that. No, you have to have... Uh, an accelerometer in every car that wirelessly tells a central computer how many gear, how many it's pulling. That's why it'll work on like a small modular layout like the chocolate, whereas yeah. on a large layout, I don't see how it would work. No, I think the other thing I talked about is wheel squeal when going around corners. Yeah. You know, if you could get something on the trucks so that as it, the more it went around, a corner, the tighter the curve was, the more the car squealed. Can right. you do that with on a tsunami with that eleven uh, brake squeal? No, but yeah, would that sound close? It might, but now brake brake squeal doesn't sound the same as wheel squeal. Okay. But but the the point is you is you'd have you have to have some sort of like reed switch or something underneath the car. I don't know how. Lionel does it because Lionel's done it. I don't know how they do it, but um, you know, I'd have to get a set of their cars, flip them over, and you know, reverse engineer it to figure out how they do accomplish the same thing. But um, they have a set of tank cars that, when they go around corners, the wheels squeal. Not wow, not to like drive you crazy, but it's. Most of the sounds, except for the filling and the the emptying of the car, are are very good. But you know, Lionel has a brake fe- brake feature on their uh, Legacy, I think it is system. And uh, the more you apply the brake, the more yeah. the brakes squeal. You know, moan. Brakes are more of a moan than a squeal. The um, the brakes moan louder and louder depending on how hard you're applying the brake. It's actually, and then as they go around corners, they'll squeak slightly. You know? Yeah. It's not like a constant scree, but it's like, you know, scree, 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 as it goes around corners. It's subtle and it's nice. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, how about if you did a, a recording of it and just put a stationary speaker in the... Uh, in the location? In the location. And then just use a uh, hot button to play a sound file. Uh, either that or what you do is you... Uh, MP3 file, for instance. Right. No, you could do it with a detector. You know, a, a yeah. optical detection or something. When something passes over the detector, it plays the sound. That's perfectly reasonable. Uh, but then again, it doesn't... The, I don't know. You, you, I guess you'd have to listen to the Lionel thing. It's, it's a different, it's a different effect, though. You know. Yeah, this, because the speaker is actually moving away from you. Right. And, and right. that'll that it'll feel completely different unless if you do like stereo and yeah. sense the direction of travel, where you can kind of have like the flame squeal kind of migrate between two different speakers to give you the right. effect of it moving. But there again, you would know, need to know the direction of travel of the train mm-hmm. 
which in you order could do to properly but, execute that. I mean, you can do that, but then then again, that gets more that that may even be more complicated than just putting a decoder in the car. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, there's a lot of different little um, little effects that you can do with uh, with just audio, and that being one and uh brake sounds obviously uh flange squealing flat wheels i i, I think kind of the the coupler clank is a little hokey yeah you know and it's always in the wrong location <laughs> you know it's about as useful as like dcc activated couplers on a locomotive you know unless if you're switching one car at a time there's like no no real benefit to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I understand that. And you know, you're going to go up to a, a, a set of 20 cars and pluck off one car at a time and move it around. <laughs> it doesn't really help out at all, at all for, for switching. Right. And if it's a long cut of cars and you're at the end, yeah. the sound's coming from the locomotive. <laughs> yep. Yep. So it's, yes, dude. Yeah, it can be a lot of these sounds. It's just it's. What's your thoughts on the the cab talker, uh, the <laughs> station sounds that some some trains have? That the MTH lo- MTH locomotives have. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> does that answer your question? Uh-huh. Yes, it does. Uh-huh. I always never seen the need for, for the cab talk to instead of have like a pre-recorded cab talk to have like whatever radio frequency that you're you're actually operating on kind of come through the cab. You know, say if you're a, I don't know off session, you're all on like FRS radios or you know the the headset radios from Radio Shack, you'd be able to tap into that frequency and have that broadcasted through your sound decoder all mixed in. Uh, yeah, that might be interesting. I, you know, on a, on a passenger locomotive, sometimes, like, I, I think I saw it on the Norfolk Western 611, the, the J class. Mm-hmm. Didn't really bother me. The station sounds, it's like, ah, okay, that's, that's kind of cool. But a lot of the, like, the cab talk, and it's like, okay, whatever. We don't talk like that. <laughs> That's not how we speak. Uh, even on the radio, that's not what we say. But um, that's all. It just sounds hokey. Like, particularly the ones from Lionel. The Lionel ones are just, like, just goofy. Really goofy. <laughs> Ready to go! Yeah! <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, no. Let's just say, Paul, words cannot describe (laughs) my opinion on that. Well, tell you what, take, uh, record some of your own uh, cab traffic uh, talk. I would. And play it for us on the next podcast. Uh, We'll have to bleep out, we'll have to mongoose some words, I'm sure. No, well, I don't swear, but... um, you're not supposed no, to. No, no, I meant some of the stuff that you would be picking up. No, no. Honestly, when I'm talking about like radio chatter, the, yeah. 
it's against the rules to use profanity. So. Oh, okay. Very good. Yeah, that's never gonna. That may on very, but if you're doing a normal conversation, but you know, in the you know the process of switching, you could say you know, all right, CSX sixty two twenty. I'm in the clear of all tracks. Drop the three step. Uh, come on back. Five cars to safety stop. Three cars, two cars to go, one car. That'll do. 50 feet, um, CSXT, CSXT 6220. I'm still in the clear of all tracks. Okay, okay, they keep coming. 50 feet to a hitch. 30, 20, 10, 5, stop and stretch. That's a good hitch, stop and three step. Three step applied. So, most of the time, if you're in a conversation, when you're having a conversation in switching operations, the yes. engineer doesn't say anything. The engineer doesn't say anything. The only person you hear on the radio is the conductor. You know, when I, when, when I ask for three-step, then the engineer will, will, will respond, but he'll just say three-step applied. But by and large, most of the time, when I'm giving directions to the engineer, I think I've said this before, it's exactly like having a radio control train because... The engineer never says anything. The train just stops when I talk to it. It's amazing. So, it would be kind of like using Siri to run your trains. <laughs> I was just going to mention that. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, but are yes. we talking about 50-foot car lengths right. or 60-foot car lengths? <laughs> we need to have a job briefing. It says, what, what length of car are we using? 50-foot? Or pigs? Are we using racks or buckets? Please clarify. We're using buckets. Thank you. Buckets or wells? Yeah. Yeah, we'd say buckets. Okay. But buckets is is kind of... I would use buckets. A lot of the guys that were there would use pigs. I prefer buckets because you just count the number of trailers. Trailer is a bucket. So trailer per bucket. Yeah, you know. So, no matter what it was, I just I would you know because I'm looking down half a mile worth of, you know, half a mile worth of train, and you're trying to compute how many buckets or pigs and you know a pig is two buckets, which isn't really, but a pig is two trailers. A pig is a hundred feet. A bucket is sort of kind of seventy, but. You just had to get with it. The, the engineers were fine with it. As long as they knew what you were going to use, they adjusted. Otherwise, this sounds like learning Klingon. Kind of. Yeah, pigs, buckets, uh, yeah, wells. You'd never say wells. Buckets. Buckets or pigs? Buckets or, or pigs. Buckets, pigs, or cars. You know, five cars to go. And when you're saying cars, it's 50 feet. Yeah, we just got to teach that to Siri so she can make a good joint. That's right. (laughs) But I think that would be kind of cool, you know, to be switching like that. Then you don't need to, like, you don't need to look at your phone at all or anything like that. You're just talking to it and 
just like an engineer, a, a brakeman or brakeman conductor on the ground. Yep. Yeah, that would be actually in a lot of way, a lot of perverse ways, that would be interesting. I think it'd be pretty cool. It kind of puts you in a different scenario. A lot of people always go into the engineer scenario. Yeah. And the other positions kind of like fall to the wayside, pun not intended, but really they do. They they kind of like lose the scope because, you know, the engineer, the, the guy in the seat has all the glory of running the train. Right. But now with, you know, prototype radio operation and talking to an engineer and stuff like that, that, that could actually open up some really interesting operation among a layout, you know? Yeah, particularly if you're doing one-man crews. Yeah. If you've got a one-man crew, then, I mean, because I know, I know I have operated places where the guy will actually give you hand signals. If you've got a conductor and you're the engineer, yeah. he'll give you hand signals. Or, you know, when I've, when I've run the yard at, at uh, Mike Conf Loans, um, when I was the engineer, then uh, Joe Posick, he would give, he would give me distances to go, you know, five cars to go, two, one. And essentially, and what you do is you get, you start doing what real engineers do, which is basically, because I'd crank the thing way up. I would like, I would, my favorite thing was switching with this ratty old C424. <laughs> and, uh, you you know, because he has everything set with momentum and, and the working brakes and all that other stuff. So you crank the thing up to notch eight because, you you know, I'm holding on to 10, 15 cars. Crank it up to notch eight and then pop the brake and it slowly starts moving. Star, slowly starts into the cars. And then you're coming down, you know, three, you know, five cars, ten cars to go and you're still into it. You know, five cars to go, three cars to go. It was either five or three cars and I would just dump it to idle. <laughs> just, just totally turn the engine off. Boom. And then you'd go straight into the hitch. So he was giving good car counts, but it was like, yeah, five, it was either three or five cars to go, and I would just shut the engine down and let it. But that's how good his momentum is set, is you're able to do that. You're able to, actually able to switch like you do in right. on the prototype. Huh. And he's doing that for what? CV3 and CV4? I don't know. I'm just an engineer. Okay. I'm just a conductor. I'm just I don't do the programming. <laughs> He's up there just hitting the run eight, you know? That's right. Yeah. yeah. I just, I just, you know, all I do is I take advantage of the fine quality programming. And I did speak to Mike Confalone and he's cool with coming on and talking, talking CVs and talking DCC. So. Cool. So oh, talk. by the way, did you guys see that uh, on Trainmasters TV that the little segment on DC from DCC decoded on the uh, Wow Sound? No. No, I was just watching yesterday. What it, it was, it was actually very informative. I shouldn't sound surprised with that. It, <laughs> I'm not surprised. It, 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 I, I, I was really impressed with how informative it was and. Uh, I would recommend you guys that have Frame Masters TV to check it out because we were talking about Wow Sound, I think, the last time. We were. 
Well, shoot, now I'm going to have to go back and look because I was sitting here for about three hours yesterday with train masters playing while I was weathering cars. And, uh, okay, I'll have to go back in. Yeah, they, they have a steam locomotive on rollers kind of going through all of its paces, and they also demonstrate the uh, Keep Alive and a few other features, too. Oh, that's uh, one with the... Uh, Oh, the Berkshire 1225, the Fair Marquette? Yeah. Setting on the rollers? No, I just saw it. I couldn't find it to play. It was on the sheet, and I went, well, heck, where's the video? Oh, okay. Okay, I'll go back and look. I was probably not clicking the mouse properly. Okay, good. I'm fascinated by that kind of stuff. I can tell. (laughs) I am. I am. Oh, uh, hey, Jim, on a side note, well, one of the things I wanted to do to my refrigerator cars, um, I'm using a bunch of blue box atherns. Mm-hmm. I was going to drill out the temperature gauge and put in an LED and cover it up with a... He, he did that, that. He did that? Yes. Really? Yeah, he, he did the same thing, yep. Uh, yes, he did. Talk about great minds thinking alike. <laughs> Apparently. Something like that, Yes. I'm not complimenting my mind as much as his, so. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, Dave has uh, pretty much sought this uh, way through. Yeah, it's kind of like me with track. Like, he is <laughs> very I'll into... Another uh, clinic right there is a uh, refrigerator car ultra detail. There you go. I know, he's definitely like, ah, Okay. You know, he's he's definitely into refrigerator cars and what they sound like. That's his thing. So, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Hmm. All right, what else? Is there anything else we need to talk about here? <sighs> I don't know. Is there? <laughs> We've been on here for an hour and a half. Doesn't matter to me. I'm not... I'm, I, I'm not going to work bright and early tomorrow, so my schedule has changed. Are you going back to days? No, I'm going back to I'm going to nights. Oh. So tomorrow I go to work at 2 p.m. and I'm done at like one in the morning. So. Well, that's not too bad. No, it, it, the the shift is actually 3:30 to one. Uh huh. So. Uh, it's just I'm gonna try leaving at two just to make sure I get because I have to drive into Boston now, oh. and it's an actual conductor's job. So I'll be in instead of just being a flunky on the train, I'll be in charge. So, so let me ask you, Jim, are you planning on heading out to Cleveland? No. Okay. No, no time. I wanted to. I had somebody invite me to Jeff Adam from Mo Truck Models. Said, hey, hey, you know, I got some space in the room. Do you want to split a room and come out? Um, and I just don't have the time or the money. So, um, yeah, my, um, I'm probably going to have to be taking a lot of, that's the reason I changed jobs is my father's going in for an operation. So I got to, I have to be able to take time off. And, and so the new job, I can take a day or two off a week and still make enough money. Gotcha. And there's going to be a period of time where I have to take a bunch of time off, so I need to make up, I need to make enough money to cover that. So, um, that's, that's all. So, 
Otherwise, I had a nice cushy job. You know, <laughs> go go to work five minutes away. It's six forty. Well, take care of your dad, get him back on his feet, and then go back to it. Yeah, maybe. You know, maybe I'll you know be able to pay some bills, get some stuff done, and we'll see. Okay. But uh, well, yeah, the problem is the problem is vacation. It's like I'd love to go out west to the west coast, but. Uh, unless somebody was paying for that to occur, um, you know, for me to pay to go out and then I just don't have enough time off to accommodate it because I normally will spend my one one week's vacation going to Cocoa Beach in the summer, I mean in the winter. So the first week of January, because nobody ever takes that week off, I know I can take that week to go to Cocoa Beach. So that's what I do. I wear as, and then I have five more days I can split between something for the rest of the year. But you know, it's a, it's a little hard because it takes so long to get to the West Coast. That's all. Right. You know, if yeah, I had, from Boston to the West Coast, yeah, that, that'd be six-hour flight time. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Mm. I mean, and then you've got two hours ahead of time to be to the airport. To go through all the security and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's like a, yeah. a full-day job just to fly right. from East Coast yeah. to West Coast. Right. Yeah, so you burn a day on each end, and then, yes. uh, then you know. Yeah, it, then you got to deal with the jet lag when you're here, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. I, my schedules are so bizarre that I don't know. Oh, you can bounce back from that? I, I think. I haven't. I don't normally have issues with jet lag. Right. I, I try to the, – the first thing you do is – don't sleep on the plane. Ah, okay. Try not, particularly if you're going to, if you're going my way. So if you're going east, particularly if you're going like going to Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I've gone to Europe, make sure you stay awake on the airplane. Do not fall asleep on the airplane and go to sleep when they go to sleep. Right. The first yeah, day. Yeah, that, that'll automatically reboot you. Well, because what happens is you're so tired after tw- you're up for like 24 hours. You're so tired, you're going to sleep. Doesn't matter right. what, the, what your body clock says. You're yeah. going to sleep. <laughs> going west, it's not as hard. Right. Uh, it's going east, it's, it's the pain. Well, that's a good tip because uh, I might be going out to Cleveland here. And oh, cool. Yeah. Well, so with your new oh, and uh, just want to also get your reaction to those YouTube videos I posted on the Facebook. Oh, about the theatrophy. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah, you definitely. Some memories. Oh yeah, definitely the whole. Uh, nobody. Uh, nobody gets the dynamic sound. Yeah. Not even close. Yeah. The, the, when I heard those locomotives sort of like come right up, right in front of the lo- the camera, and go into notch eight, I was just like, there it is. That that's. Yep. That's what you were talking about. And what's kind of funny, too, in the forum, everybody was praising the ESU sound as being the, hailing them the, the better sound decoder. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with everything but what you were saying. You know, the eighth of notch is Crap. completely absent. You know? Yeah. They go, to the, they go to the sixth notch and then nothing. Right. Maybe it's seventh, but they don't, they don't have the chance. It's, yeah, it's just not there. The howl or yeah, the howl. Whatever. The howl of the dynamic brakes is the missing on pretty much all of them. And you're right. You do have to notch it. If it's for it to be correct, you'd have to notch it. 
Yeah. It, it's not just a on-off. It's not on-off. It's It goes up and down depending on what notch dynamic you're in. So. And I think it's something that they could probably do um, just by using the speed, reconfiguring the speeds to, to affect the dynamic brake sound, you know. So if you start slowing down more, maybe increase the dynamic brake a little bit or something. I don't know. E- either that or have the dynamic one have the right sound. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Number to start from there. Yeah. And then okay. have the function work like manual notching. Right. That would be the yeah. easiest way to deal with it is just manual notch it. Yeah. Press it eight times to get full dynamic. Yeah. Okay, then what happens when, if I'm undynamic, when I notch that, what am I doing? Because you were just talking about being able to change the notch of dynamic or increase the dynamic effect. So what am I doing when I do that? I don't understand that. A locomotive works. There's, you know, just like how there's eight speed steps to that, you know, throttle. Mm-hmm. That's how there's eight speed steps to the dynamic, dynamic brake. Right. Okay, but on what? the dynamic brake, we've turned the traction motors into a generator yeah. that's running against a resistance grid, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, then if I notch, change the notching on the dynamic, what am I doing? Increasing the resistance? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that reflects in what? The, the speed or the load on the... The, the sound of the fans, then? Yes. It'll give you a more distinct howl versus kind right. of a moan. It goes from moan to howl in those eight right. notches. Yeah. Okay, but the prime mover is in idle, right? Correct. Yes. So what I'm hearing is changing the sound of the fans. Essentially, yes. Okay. All right. I just want to make sure I was understanding it right. Yeah, you, it's, it, I mean, essentially, check out it's, that second video I posted where it's most of them just dynamic braking, and and compare it to hitting the function button that gives you a dynamic brake, which, which is just like a a buzzing. Yeah, a buzzing sound. You know, it sounds like a bunch of hornets and yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like a bunch of angry hornets in a nest. You know, that that's about all you can describe it as. It doesn't really sound like a dynamic brake at all. Right, and dynamics on GE sound totally different than dynamics on EMDs. Yes. To, on GEs, there it's kind of a a whooshing sound, sorta. That's not even a. That's not even. It's again, it's a fan sound, but it's it's a different fan. So, um, it, it's hard. It's very hard to describe, but it's it, yeah, it, you know, it's it's the amount of. It's the amount of resistance that the traction motors are creating. So, I mean, all that happens in a locomotive, if you're using the old-style stand, you know, you've got the selector that does neutral, forward, and reverse, uh, and then you have a handle for the throttle and a handle for the dynamic, and they each have eight notches. So, you know, you can't use the dynamics if you have the throttle engaged at all. Right. Well, I just wanted to make sure. So there, I'll go get some of my DVDs. I've got a bunch of DVDs on Tehachapi. And I'll just listen to the segments of where they're coming down, and I'll see if I can pick out this difference in fan distress. If you can't, you're deaf. 
Okay. <laughs> huh? Huh? What'd you say? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. You can't, you def. So, because it's very, particularly at Tehachapi, if they're coming down to the bottom at Waylong and they have yeah. to stop, particularly if they're stopping at that signal there at the tunnel, yeah. you'll hear it. Well, that video I posted has tank train coming down. And, you know, oh, yeah. And it stop, does exactly what you're saying. It stops right on Wellong, you know. And yeah. There's a couple helpers behind it and all that stuff. So yeah. you'll hear it, and you'll hear the brake squeal, and also the flange squeal going down the, the tight radius curves there. All the extra ambient noises, although ambient yeah, is the probably amb- The ambient no- noises there. Yeah, that was pro- that's probably not the right word, but... I used it anyway. <laughs> All right, Chris, I went on to uh, Train Masters. Yeah. It's May 2000, or, yeah, 2014. It's, act, it's act three. Two or three. Yeah, Act 3. Okay. Because I remember the Forest Park, the CNO, remember that. So I maybe I was just not being as attentive as possible when that uh, went by, but I'll click on it and listen to it. Yeah. Check it, out the wow sound. Yeah, it's really exciting as far as, you know, steam sound is concerned, and I'm hoping that they do some diesel. I, I just appreciate how how well the decoder handles the train and handles the sound in coordination with... Yes, I was too. Yeah, that, that was really nice. I've seen okay. it in person, but it's it's very impressive. We've got a couple of them in stock at the store, but we haven't sold any yet. No one has come in and asked for it. Yeah, rip yeah, rip one of, rip one of those stinky tsunamis out and put one of those in and see how it works. Yeah. Yeah, let me let me take my big boy apart here and put a wow heavy duty in there. Well, yeah, I don't see, know. If, see if the professor can help you uh, get it calibrated to the speaker and then have that go around the the, the hobby shop layout. You know, and see how many you sell then, you know? <laughs> That's right. You're certainly not going to sell any until uh, people can hear it because they're going to go, oh, wow, tsunami. Oh, that's a tsunami. Sounds great. Oh, that's a tsunami. That sounds great. Yeah, you, you got the marketing engine going for tsunami. And, you know, it, model railroaders, they won't buy anything unless if they see it working, you know? That's right. If, if it's just dangling in a plastic baggie on a shelf, it's going to continue to be a Christmas ornament, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I never took the tinder apart, but I did put it on the test rollers, and uh, I did enhance the sound out of the out of the big boy by playing with the uh, graphic equalizer. But it still just needs to have more robust speakers back there. So I don't have any cars to pull with it anyway. So they're all assigned to my other trains. I'm still building the the big boy train. Um, well, well can I Jim, you'll be I... happy to know I put together a tank train. Oh, cool. Oh, the uh, GATX uh, tank train? Yeah. Uh, I, for that last show that we did over, uh, well, more the meet, the last meet that we did at the station there in San Bernardino, I pulled out the the tank train. It was still Athern's tank train, but I was taking it for a test drive. Mm. And I saw it advertised as being in stock at some places. Not really. It all blew out. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. So the the whole pre-order thing, if, if the hobby shop's not pre-ordering enough, people aren't going to get them. So 
Mm. Be sure to tell your hobby shop to, you know, that that's going to be a popular item. So get some extras. Okay. Well, let me add. All right. So does Athern have them or they shipped everything? We do not carry inventory. Athern does not okay. carry inventory. Okay. So it's all been shipped out to? Yeah, all shipped out to the distributors. And whether or not the distributors have ordered enough for their uh, their customers, uh, that's uh, that's another issue, but we fulfilled the volume that was ordered by the distributors, so <laughs> we're passing the buck. <laughs> so what is it that you do there? Um, right now, I'm a I do a quality assurance, making okay. sure that the models are quality, they operate correctly, and that there are no flaws with it either, as far as like the build and how things are constructed and stuff. So part of my thing was I, I wasn't sure that anybody had actually operated um, the tank train out of, you know, the La Mesa Mall Railroad Club, which is a pretty, they have pretty good track there. So I, I decided to take this train and put it onto a modular layout and see how it handled. And we, we have pretty good track, too. But, of course, by modules being modules, the, the, the joints always seem to be a, a point of tension. Even even with the finer tolerances, it's just temperature changes can kind of adjust things a little bit. So I put the train on. I ran it the entire weekend without incident. There was zero derailments, even with the the pipes going across the the um, the cars there. So how many cars set? A forty-two car set. Nice of tank train. A tank train. Nice. Not a, Ooh, that's not impressive. Just a, a tank train segment. It was a Tank train. <laughs> it was it was it was a lot of fun running that that train. I mean, no no weathering or anything to speak of on it. It was all fall out of the box, and that was kind of on purpose to kind of see if it could run very well out of the box without having to adjust truck screws and all that stuff. Okay, because it comes as what a two car set that are the ends. Yeah, and then you've got the intermediate cars you buy. Yeah, you buy the intermediates cool. separate and. They typically ran them in 13-car sets, right? 12-car sets, and occasionally 11. And that that would be due to one of the cars just getting swapped out for maintenance. Well, I tell you what, I haven't seen any at our store, so I don't know if Bob bought any or not. Right. Because I wanted to get at least a four-car four, four car set, you know, the ends and two in the middle. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm glad it sold well. Yeah. I am too. It means I have a job. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean it. Uh, remember, we were talking about it last fall yeah. when they announced the right. uh, research they had put into it. Yeah. I thought this will really be good if it executes well. And sounds like if you know if you were running forty some cars, it did. Yeah, it, it prompted me to to turn in my own personal order to uh, to Athern for. 39 cars, so that that's two, or no, three 13-car sets. Holy cow. Yeah. That's a couple of dollars. Yeah. A little bit of money, yeah, but it, it's, people spend $30,000 on a brass passenger train. This is far less than that, you know. Nice to have the dough to do it. <laughs> well, Jim, I think we've got our conduit to getting our tank train. Yes. <laughs> Paulo Mara's uh, Industries here. There you go. Oh, trying the old workaround here. Now, you still you still working <laughs> at uh, Microscale 2? Yes, I am. In fact, uh, 
kind of interesting to note that the the unnumbered cars for the tank train, there is a corresponding microscale decal set, so you can put the right numbers onto the onto the tank train and mix and match your own. Now that wasn't a now, ladies and gentlemen, that was not a planned plug for either one of <laughs> Mr. Palomares' companies, but it worked out that way. <laughs> well, they're not mine. <laughs> I just help out, you know. Uh huh. Just the way the conversation went. Yes. It wasn't planned. Just just fell right into place. Well, uh, a, lot, a lot of people don't know that there's a decal sheet to kind of support the, mm-hmm. the unnumbered cars, so it's good to... Good to know. Heaven knows, no one knew that you were distributing Atherm products either. I'm not <laughs> distributing Atherm products. You got to go through your hobby shop there, Senor, <laughs> and put in an order, just like everybody else. <laughs> I, I I will say though. So I'm at the 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 show this this weekend, and Atlas is there. Uh huh. And he has one of those really nice. Uh, he had a two rail O, one of their new tank cars. Yeah. In a in a black and gray scheme. It's the black car with a gray stripe in the middle. I oh said, yeah. Man, I I would I would you know make sure that I, I that you don't have to carry that back home. It's like I can't sell it. What do you mean you can't sell it? I said not if I want my job. <laughs> oh. Like oh man, he says I got plenty of offers for it, but no, I can't sell them. I said I guess they they went into the they just don't want to deal with taxes and getting right. you know sales tax numbers and that foolishness. They did it one time and. He says, I don't think, I don't even think we paid for our credit card machine. Yeah, it was just too much hassle. We didn't want to be bothered. So we just lugged the stuff around and I have to make sure that I keep it all. Like, ah, bummer. Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of good for the distributors that way because then it, it really no. routes the customer through the distributor and kind of getting used to using that mechanism. Yeah, I suppose. But <sighs> without the distributors, one. you end up like, like exact rail wondering, uh, well, how come we have all these in stock still? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tried to plug Proto 48 to him. Yeah. And, uh, it was an interesting conversation because I said, here's, because I have trucks, I have Atlas trucks that I have designed apart that will narrow the side frames so that it's a drop in part. It's exactly the same as Atlas's part. It's just narrower to accommodate right. the Proto 48 wheel sets. I had a conversation with him, and he said, uh, well, I said, well, you know, the tricky bit is the axle. Oh, no, the axles are easy. You know, that's a machine part. That's no big deal. So I'm thinking, all right, so now that we've just come to the conclusion that making new axles, Proto 48 axles, is not a big deal for you. I didn't say that <laughs> that's not a big deal to you. I have, and I said, I will give you all of my models. That is, you know, all my 3D models. All my all my models, all my artwork, all of my work, I will give it to you if I could get Proto 48 drop-in trucks for Atlas stuff. And he says, "Well, I, you know, I'll, I'll I'll talk to the uh, I forget what he said. I, I I'll talk to the guy in service and see if he ever gets any requests for it." I said, "They're not going to request it." Proto 48 guys are very so we say pragmatic. Yeah. And we realized you're going to say no. We're going to say, hey, would you make Proto 48 trucks? No. Okay. We're pretty certain you're going to say no, so we're not even going to ask. Right, yeah. <laughs> What's the point? Because <laughs> you're going to say no. 
but it's a you know it's a chicken and egg thing. Well, nobody will buy them. Well, nobody will buy them because you don't make them. Yeah, right. So, and since all it is is that, you know, since I would pay more money for a Proto 48 truck. I mean, because the only other roller bearing truck in Proto 48 is $65 a pair. Woo! Yeah, I would happily pay $35 a pair. I mean, because a regular set of trucks is like $25 a pair. A regular O-scale set of trucks is $25 a pair. All right, sell them for 30 30 Sell them for 35 We'd buy them. But, you know, it's a chicken and an egg. If they don't have them, then they could be the ones leading the way for Proto 48. But, because I certainly can't do it. Chris, though, he might be able to do it. He seems to have enough money that he might be able to pull it off. Hi, Chris. (laughs) Well, let's get some investors to talk about it, Jim. I don't know what the industry has against DP 40-2s. I mean, how long did it take? Before someone made a GP40, not an SD40-2, but a GP40-2, you got inundated with GP40s and GP35s. Yeah. Right. Why do we have 17 versions of a GP35? I don't know. And GP40-2s are like, weren't there more of them than GP40s, I think? Yeah, and there yeah. are more variations. It wasn't until the Genesis GP40-2 and HO scale that you're able to do the the late 80s, or I should say the mid-80s yeah. version with the straight frame rail, the, the angry, angled laundry chute, the Q-fans, yeah. going all the way up to the Conrail version, which is much more akin to the GP40 with this, yeah. you know, it has more parts akin to it and a different door arrangement. And, right. you know, the laundry chute's a little different, you know. Right. right. Yeah, it, it, there's a huge range of them, a huge amount of variance of GP40-2. But you know, this, so this, you have all these GP40-2s, but it wasn't until Atlas came out with theirs, and it wasn't yeah. very long ago. It wasn't like, no, I, what Atherin won Blue Box, and then they did the Ready to Run. Yeah. And then Atlas came out with one that was better, I think. Maybe no, maybe it wasn't. Uh, I know it ran better. Ran better than the either one of those. And then Athens come out with the GP40-2 in the Genesis line. So, But it seemed like it took a long time to get to, you know, people were doing GP35s and GP40s and GP38s and, like, everything except the, the, the second biggest seller. Okay, you, you know, did the well, when, when did the first GP40-2 come out? Was it, like, 76 or something? 76, yeah. Something like that. Okay, it's been almost... Forty years until the model caught up with yeah. you know, the actual release. Uh, the Dash Two line was uh, introduced in 1972. I don't know if the 40-2 uh, came out then, but uh, well, the GP40Ps did, and the GP40P-2s okay. came out in 75, and okay. they had them around in uh, the bicentennial schemes. Okay, you know, so I know the GP40-2s came out about 76. Let's just Round it off. Now, I'm going to disagree because Sino Bino had 40-2s by early 1973 because go look up photos of uh, Bino 50. Yeah, it's 72. It just, okay, well, April, well, well, April let's not get I'm just saying that it's been 40 years. Right. No, you're right. You're right. It's been a long time. 
dang near 40 years, if not 40 years exactly, you know, so. Well, it looks like that's just going to wrap up this issue here. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, look forward to in the future, we're going to be doing some uh, more in-depth DCC uh, segments of shows. Try and get Mike Confalone. Uh, maybe we can get a hold of uh, Gary Polino up at uh, Train Tech, uh, Bruce Petrarca, who does the column here. So stay tuned for those. But we'll be back uh, with another show. And again, thank you very much for listening. 